This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. B-F-F-T. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Well, the NFL teams were cutting down to their 53-man rosters today. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit, but I started thinking about what has to go in your sports menu. You know, it's a growing sports calendar. The NFL starting to play games earlier. College football trying to play games, uh, you know, on every night of the week and uh, and extend the playoff when they expand it in 2024. The NBA preseason will be along in short order. Then uh, the NBA's midseason tournament and baseball. We've seen baseball's Mr. October turned into Mr. November. The sports calendar getting greedy. All of the sports would love to have your attention on them and they make no bones about it but i have to ask you uh you know you're the consumer the market won't lie what don't you have as much room for anymore when it comes to sports what did you think about when i was saying that is it your fantasy football team that has to go is it uh you you're less interested in the nhl or major league baseball is it that you have less time for the nba's regular season does college football and everything that has gone on in the last month or so in college football with realignment and expansion, has it turned you off to the point where you're willing to go, hey, you know what, I don't care as much about college football. The NFL teams are cutting their rosters. They're trimming down to 53. I want you to trim your sports calendar and help me understand what matters, what doesn't matter as much when it comes to your calendar. 503 417 Seventy-five, seventy-five. I will start, and I would love to get your feedback on this as well. When it was, it pertains to looking at fantasy football. I have found that I have less time for fantasy football, and part of it is because I know when I play fantasy football, I've got to go all in. I need to track the uh, the day to day waiver wire. I need to be aware of injuries for e- even obscure players. If I'm looking for a tight end or a, uh, a second running back, I need to know who's been picked up, who's been traded, who's injured. It causes me a level of concentration that I am not willing to dabble with. Like I'm either all in or I'm not in at all when it comes to fantasy football. And then I found another complication that's squeezing from the other side because fantasy football is gambling. It, you know, it's it's glorified, disguised gambling we all know it. You're betting more or less on players and teams and yourself. Yes, it's fun. 
Yes, there's an element to it of, uh, you know, who can put this puzzle together the best on a week-to-week basis. Yes, there are matchups to consider, but it is gambling. And I have found with sort of the expanded uh, appetite that the public has for gambling, by the time I get through kind of handicapping the college football games every week, which I do, and last week I went on a torrential run that was fantastic. I was just so on fire for about three weeks. I think I went something like 17 out of out of 19 games I picked correctly against the spread at one point. I was uh, I was just feeling it in the middle of the season when it came to the Pac-12, but I was focused on watching that, tracking that, being into that, focused on uh, you know the different bets that were going on in the, uh, the in the world of uh, DraftKings and in the state of Oregon focused on covering gambling in a different way, and I found myself a little bit squeezed because I wasn't going to give up caring about the the Ducks. I wasn't going to give up caring about the Beavers. I wasn't going to care less about the Trailblazers or the NFL. Uh, And so something had to give if I was giving more oxygen, so to speak, to gambling and point spreads because there was just more interest in it, and there is a growing interest in it. And what, what eventually suffered in my world was fantasy football. So if I am trimming my roster down to a 53-man roster, I'm trimming some fantasy football out of my life in the last couple of years. And, and you know what? I haven't missed it. And I haven't talked about it much on the show. I haven't missed it. I know it's important in your life. Uh, but I'm not going to be that show who lets one caller call in and lament the problem with their fantasy league roster while everybody else goes, I don't care about that guy's fantasy league roster. These problems are like fingerprints. They're unique to you. They're not universal. And so I have had less room in my life for fantasy football. But there are others out there who might say, hey, the the NBA regular season's too long. It lost me. Uh, And maybe if you're a Blazer fan in particular, that makes it easy. Like the Damian Lillard drama... The fact that the Blazers, you know, in the run-up to this season are not a team that's being talked about as a team that could be a playoff team or even play uh, into the second round of the playoffs really takes some luster off. So if you call in and you tell me, hey, I've trimmed my sports menu down by uh, removing part of the NBA regular season, I'm just going to care a little less, I'm not going to blame you for that. Uh, There are others yet who will say that, you know, the NFL with its expanded season and uh, the fact that they start preseason games and start talking about the preseason way earlier than college football does, uh, you have uh, you know every right to say that you've uh, trimmed the NFL or at least the early part of the NFL out of your life if that's your thing, or Major League Baseball's regular season, or hockey altogether. What have you trimmed off of your sports menu as the NFL teams trim down to a 53-man roster and make some massive cuts? Uh, who's on the move? Or what's on the move when it comes to your sports menu? 503-417-7575. I'm more or less asking you, you know, as our sports calendar gets squeezed down, what do you have less room for? What do you have more love and more room for in your life? And if you're a Mariners fan you're watching the Mariners on absolute fire, I'm not going to blame you if you say, hey, I, I have more love and more room in my life right now for the Major League Baseball season and the potential postseason. Steven, I'm going to go to you on this. Uh, you know, I know that... You are locked in when it comes to your sports calendar. What what are you trimming these days? First of all, I love the fantasy football answer you gave there because I I'm the same way. Like you know, we do a fantasy football league with my family. It's the 16th year this year. Like I've ran it for most of the time. Like you know, 12 or 13 years. I'm the commissioner, but like I have a lot less time for it because 
Like, if I want to bet on NFL or if I want to play fantasy football, I could bet on props on the NFL. And I can bet on it, and I find it more fun that way than actually playing fantasy football. So I have cut a little fantasy football. Now I still play. I just don't go all in, and I'm okay with it. Uh, but I love that answer. Uh, for me, a lot of it is, first, like you talk about the NBA. This season is way too long, and I think it's very obvious that a lot of players don't even want to play in these games. The fact that they're putting an in-season tournament, it just seems really uh, weird. So for me, like... I don't have to watch every single game, but what I have to do is I have to make sure I divide my time correctly to listening to the correct people talk about the sport. There's so much content out there, uh, whether it's podcasts or TV, whatever it is. I, I've really done a really good job in my life to cut down to the people that I, I only trust and I only listen to, and I block off the other noise. Because there's so much content on there, John, and there's only some, yeah. so many people I get what that, you're saying. that actually watch the games. There's people that go on TV or on podcasts and just start spouting stuff off, and you can tell they, they didn't watch or they're not paying attention. And so I've really done a good job the last couple of years of figuring out exactly who I like to listen to and what I like to listen to, and that kind of catches me up so I don't necessarily have to watch every single game or watch all the big games and I can go and watch my kids play soccer. Like my son mm-hmm. has a soccer uh, scrimmage today. I'm going to go to that. Like I'm excited for that. I don't need to go and watch, you know, baseball or watch preseason for whatever it is, you know? And so I feel like for me, it's, it's cutting down on the content that I don't need to listen to and really buckling down on the stuff that I need to listen to. You hit on something. Cause I was talking about this with my brother in the summer. He, he has kids who are of the age that they're all playing soccer. They're running cross country. They're, you know, they're active middle school and high school age kids. He's kind of in that sweet spot for the cottage industry that is youth sports. And I think when your kids hit about 12, they fall into that, and they don't really get released from it until maybe 16 or 17 if they're playing on. And I have found that kids' lives are busier. You want to talk about a 53-man roster that needs trimming. It's like the youth sports season that used to be you know, 18 or 20 Little League games or youth baseball games for me has now turned into fall ball, travel ball, you know, your regular school league, your little league. And I'm watching kids who are playing like 54 or 65 game schedules in baseball. And I'm going, where, what is, what is suffering? Like what is having to get trimmed because of that? And I think the commitment that parents are making traveling with these teams going out of state, driving out on a Friday night, staying at a hotel with the team, going through kind of the uh, the, you know, the team tournament, and then uh, turning around and driving back. Like That's become your weekend if you're a parent who's got a kid playing youth sports. And believe me, I lived it with our oldest who was playing volleyball, and I know that it, you know I'm in this little gap right now where the 7- and 9-year-old haven't started to play club but I can tell like they've got their eye on different sports, and I'm going, okay, what's going to give here? Because something's going to have to give in their life. And I love that answer because you know the way that we consume games now is way different. The fact that you have your mobile device and that you can watch a game or you can stream or you can track it in real time uh, is really does make a difference. Yeah, like, All right. on yeah. the week, over the weekend, you know, week zero college football, I wanted to watch some of the Notre Dame uh, Navy game. So we were in the car and I'm watching it on my, on my phone. Like I'm watching it there and I'm watching some stuff. And then, you know, when we drive around, when I'm driving to work, I'm listening to certain podcasts. Cause it's tough. Cause you, you're right on. Like I want to let my kids play sports because it's so important to get out there and play sports. And rather than just sit at home, play video games but at the same time, like it is a job, it's another job for the parents. And so yeah, for me, it's, I got to buckle down and I got to really pinpoint who I want to listen to and what I trust. I want to go to the phone lines, 503-417-7575 is the number. Kirk Schultz, the Washington State president, coming up here 
uh, in about 10 minutes. Once you hear for that interview is I'm going to ask him, you know, what's the timeline for Oregon State and Washington State? Uh, what's the next move that needs to happen? What's the role of Oliver Luck, the consultant? What's the role of George Klyovkov moving forward, the Pac-12 commissioner? Is he really the commissioner or just the commissioner in name? I'll talk to Kirk Schultz, the president at Washington State, uh, coming up here in a few minutes. But let's go to the phone lines. Pat's in Longview. Pat, tell me about your sports calendar. What are you trimming? Uh, I've already trimmed hockey, totally. And I pretty much have trimmed the NBA for one simple reason. They refused to put a team in Seattle. Hmm. When that comes back to Seattle, does that change for you? Yes. Because hockey put a team there, and the Kraken, they haven't captured you. They won't capture me. You're just not a hockey fan? Uh, not the way the NHL's played today. What's wrong with the game? Let's just say uh, it's too much... There's, there was a level of violence, and I'm going to call it violence, Okay. Uh, in the NHL when I was growing up, or, excuse me, the WHL. I right. was a big Seattle Totems fan. You liked the violence. And uh, there was, a, I guess, a timing to uh, hockey that's not there now. Mm-hmm. Everything's about goal scoring, and oh, gee, we can't have, you know, we can't have the big fights. You like a good scrap. I'm gathering that you like a good scrap. I did, and I think what's taken, what I've replaced it with is MMA. Mm. Occasionally a hockey game breaks out at one of those MMA fights. Uh, but you think I, I I do find myself like we used to play a lot more hockey clips on this show, and part of it for me is, you know, we don't have an NHL team here, and until the Kraken got to Seattle, we didn't have one in the region. So we did a little bit of Winterhawks on this show, but by and large, it was um, you know only Stanley Cup Finals would we really start to deal with hockey. I do think hockey is one of those things that has. Uh, has suffered when it, when the sports calendar expanded. And, and here's another thing. When the pandemic hit and the sports calendar got dumped on its head and the NBA season got interrupted and baseball had a slow start and college football games either got postponed or moved back, it really threw everybody for a loop. And I do think some of the leagues have taken notice of that and said, hey, there's some market share we can gobble up. The NFL, for example is going to move the start of its season, I think, a little bit forward, and I think they're going to start playing more Saturday games in future years. I will not be surprised next season, the season beyond that, you start to see more Saturday games. You're starting to see it already this season when the schedule came out. It wasn't just limited to, hey, Wild Card Weekend's going to have some Saturday games. No, they're starting to play some Saturday games. College football is going to react to that. College football doesn't want to be anywhere near the NHL on the calendar. Excuse me, NFL on the calendar. It loses. Head-to-head, it loses. College football will lose, lose those battles. Plus, there's just an inventory uh, issue there if you've got college football games on Fox and NFL games on Fox. Uh, what they're going to want to do is they're going to want to, because those games are going to start to intrude on Saturdays, and because the college football playoff is going to expand, and there's going to be a bigger crossover between the NFL and, and the college game, I think you're going to see... Uh, the college football season creep forward. I think you're going to start to see, you know, we 
we generally will see week zero last week, week one this week. I will not be surprised if two years from now you're looking at, you know, some games being played like August 17th, August 14th, right in that window for week zero. I think they're going to move it up a couple of weeks to try to get away from the NFL. The NBA is clearly doctoring their schedule and and messing around with the midseason. Like, they put an early season and a midseason tournament in. they got a play-in tournament in. They have to be looking over at the World Baseball Classic, which baseball did this last year, I think, with great success, and going, hey, we need to copy that. We need to make the regular season a little more interesting, get the players engaged earlier, sell an additional asset to TV. You're already seeing the NBA do that, but there is going to become – uh, a crowded sports calendar at some point, and you're going to have to pick things. And I'm wondering, what are you going to trim? As the 49ers cut down to 53 on their roster, Jack Coletto among the casualties, uh, Oregon State standout, uh, you know, what are you going to do with your sports calendar? Josh is in Vancouver. Josh, what are you trimming? Hey, John, that's a, it's funny that, you know, as I got older, especially when I had kids, like, pretty much all sports at some level have been trimmed out of my life and not fully right so i still catch baseball for the postseason i'll still catch most you know blazer games when i have an evening that's not consumed with my kids activities uh you know nba playoffs is something i try to check in on i've even even though like i grew up on never missing a sunday night (laughs) or a monday night or a thursday night football game I almost don't even watch the NFL regular season unless I'm catching one of the Ducks. You know, I love watching Herbert right now. Uh, but other than that, I'm really tuning in for the playoffs. And what I really think, honestly, John, it's kind of expanding a little bit on what you just said, but I think the minute that all of these sports, right, started identifying that they have a little bit more market share that they could go after and they started expanding, it started turning all of these sports into year-round entities. And so where when I was younger, I would have my defined football season, defined basketball season, defined baseball season. I could take it in and enjoy it, and I had to because if I didn't, I had to wait a whole other year to get it. It's not like that anymore. So really, you don't feel like you're really missing anything. The only exception for that now for me is college football. Anyways, bud, good, great yeah. topic. Thanks for the yeah. uh, line. I think about it all the time. I think about this stuff all the time, and I thought about it coming out of the pandemic. And I'm looking at the college football season. We had week zero games last Saturday, last weekend. You know, Utah's going to play Florida this Thursday night. Then week one comes, you know, obviously this week. We're on day two of week one. And then what, what's going to happen? The NFL's going to happen is what? The NFL's season opener, Chiefs will host the Lions on Thursday, a week from Thursday, on NBC and uh, right here on 750 The Game. And, you know, got a bunch of teams that are – finalizing their 53-man rosters, and I'm going, well, wait a minute, they're almost going head-to-head the college football season in the NFL, especially with the NFL creeping into Saturdays. Like, high school football was made for Friday nights, right? Then college games were supposed to be Saturday, and the NFL was supposed to be Sunday, but the NFL figured out, oh, Monday could be a nice day for us too, and Sunday night could be nice, and oh, by the way, those Saturday wildcard playoff games did pretty well, and hey, how about Thursday night? That's a pretty good night for us too. All of a sudden, college is looking around going, we just got surrounded here. It's ridiculous. Uh, Mike and Klamath Falls. Quickly, Mike, go ahead. Well, I just want to say that given the fact I'm an Oregon State fan and the way the network has screwed us, 
Uh, I'm going to sure cut out all the cupcake games like Alabama playing Austin PA in the middle of the season <laughs> because that has no relevance in my life. And I know I don't matter, but that's important to me. No, the other you do. point I was, wanted to make that's a little off topic is the fact that for every winner there has to be a loser, and I have to wonder how many uh, of the Big Ten teams are thinking of the Pac-12 teams come in as being the losers that they need to have a nice record. Yeah, or or they're looking over at Indiana and Purdue and Iowa and Illinois and Northwestern and Rutgers and Maryland and going, you know what, in the next round of media rights, uh, we're happy to have you, but you'll have to take a, a 25 or 50% haircut to stick around because we'd like to have more money. All right, coming up, speaking of... What's going to happen next? Oregon State and Washington State have been left out. Stanford, Cal, SMU in a dance with the ACC. It has left fans of Washington State and Oregon State very frustrated, and I can't say I blame them. Kirk Schultz is the president at Washington State. He's going to give us some direction on the timeline for Washington State. What are they thinking about? What comes next? Who's involved? Is it Oliver Luck? Is it George Klyovkov? Kirk Schultz, president of Washington State, next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, there's no way around it. When the Pac-12 conference imploded on that fateful Friday, it was Washington State and Oregon State that got left behind. Oregon and Washington go off to the Big Ten Conference. The Four Corners schools take refuge in the Big 12. You now have Stanford and Cal in the ACC uh, flirtation. Uh, that became evident pretty early on. And, and Oregon State and Washington State have been left trying to figure out if they're going to put the pieces back together and what that would look like. A lot of frustrated stakeholders. Kirk Schultz is the president at Washington State University. He's been kind enough to join us. Uh, president Schultz, i got to ask you, the, the last few weeks have been really difficult on fans, difficult on athletes, difficult on coaches. What has it been like for you? Oh, it's been pretty awful, uh, <laughs> to be honest, as I think it has for, you know, everybody, uh, especially at Oregon State and Washington State, just kind of watching all this stuff unfold, uh, watching everybody sort of chase after dollars and, you know, watching a lot of tradition go away, loss of rivalries. Uh, there's there's really been nothing about it that has felt good, but I think about a week ago, John, you know, at least myself, our team at Washington State decided, you know what, we gotta we gotta close the book here on the past and look towards the future, and let's figure out what the right pathway is for WSU, and stop following everybody else around as to what they're doing, and I think. That's an important philosophical point that it gives us some freedom to say what's going to be best for us moving forward, and I think that's where we got to focus our energy. How do you balance what's doing right for Washington State and Oregon State right now versus where it's going to be in 10 years? Yeah, you know, I, I can't worry too much about where it's going to be in 10 years or even five years. I think what I want to make sure that we're doing is as we talk to broad constituents, and I can't emphasize this enough uh you got to be we are talking to our student athletes we're talking to some of our former student athletes who've gone on to professional careers in football and other things and remain invested with the university we're talking to our faculty staff and our student government 
Um, you know, and I know when I first put out what our committee was going to look like, you know, there's a lot of criticism out there. Well, how come you don't have more of X, Y, or Z, or you got too much of this? And at the end of the day, this is an institutional decision, not just a decision made by the athletic director and the president. And I want to emphasize that this impacts so many different groups that you want to take your time to do it right. Now, I have, I'm under no illusion that we're going to get to the end of whatever WSU is going to do, and everybody's going to agree that this is the right solution. But I just didn't want anybody to go, you know, my voice wasn't heard. I had an opinion. Nobody cared about it. Uh, we want to just make sure we're hearing from a lot of folks about what that next stage has got to look like. Um, and I think it's, uh, you know, false to think that there will be no reshuffling in the future. Um, now, whether that's five years out, ten years out, whatever, you know, what I want to do is make sure let's figure out where we got to be today and what can we be doing so that when the next round of shuffling goes on, whatever that is, that WSU has positioned itself to be attractive to whatever other leagues might be forming out there. Or, you know, we might be in a place at a time we say, you know what, we like exactly where we are. We like the rivals we have. We like where athletics is at our university. We're not interested in going anywhere. I want that to be our choice, though, and not dependent on what everybody else is doing. Are we talking about a rebuilt Pac-2 or Pac-4 conference, or are you talking about relegation, joining the Mountain West or AAC? Where do you stand right now? You know, I think we still want to figure out what we might be able to do uh, along with Oregon State and perhaps Cal and Stanford, um, depending on where their decision points are, uh, about, you know, sort of keeping the band together and, and figuring out what that next step looks like. Now, that may not be necessarily just grabbing schools from other conferences. It could be some sort of a merger or a combination or whatever. And I just don't think – I think it's too early for us to be able to know what that looks like. Um, I think you've written as well as uh, John Wilner about, you know, some of the assets uh, that, that are available in the conference and who's going to decide what those assets look like and where they go. And I think those are all information points that we're going to need in the next couple of weeks on making that decision. I also am a pragmatist and a realist. And – you know, people out there have said, oh, well, let's go grab, you know, schools from this place and that place and we can get up to 12 or, or whatever. you got to have some financial resources to do that too. Uh, you know, a lot of schools are, are pretty happy with where they are. And if you say, hey, join us, and by the way, we may all be looking over our shoulders at the next best thing to go, people could say, you know what, I'm pretty damn happy where I am. Not sure I want to go jump into something that's so uncertain. So I just think we've got to keep our options open, John, and I think we're going to see more clarity in the next couple of weeks when we sort of see, one, what happens with Cal and Stanford, two, what do the assets look like to, to do any sort of building, and three, you know, who, what schools would be interested in doing something like that that, you know, they already got a pretty good home, they already feel pretty good about it, and would there be something more attractive than where they are now? And I think all those things need to be answered. Help me out with the Power Five conference designation. Is it the conference? Is it the schools themselves? In the eyes of the NCAA, in the eyes of the college football playoff, can you unpack that? Yeah, it turns out it's, as you know, um, it's not as um, 
clear a definition as everybody would like to think. I think when there were, you know, previously when we had five conferences that were sort of identified originally as the autonomy five, and actually I was one of the chief architects of that happening when I was at Kansas State working with the NCAA was, you know, let's make sure that the five conferences that, shall we say, committed the largest amount of financial resources to our athletic programs wanted an ability to have more freedom to make decisions to benefit student-athletes. That's originally where the Autonomy Five came from. Then it got morphed into sort of this Power Five. And really, I think now today, the key thing is in the football playoffs, um, if you look at the dollars generated in the football playoffs, the Power Five keep 80% of the revenue, and the other five Division I conferences get 20% of the revenue. And that, to me, is where the biggest difference is, is who gets the lion's share of the money coming off the football playoff. And if we are no longer considered a Power Five conference or whatever the commissioners decide to do in their meetings over the next couple of months, uh, I think that just means you can still have competition at the highest levels, but you're not going to have those large financial resources flowing into your school every year that help you do some other things. It became evident on that Friday as everybody was running for the hills that your media market and your brand are the most important things when it comes to uh, being attractive in expansion and realignment. So how do you, as Washington State or Oregon State, improve your brand if you're not getting that money that you talked about? Well, you got to get the money from somewhere else if you're going to do it. And, you know, the somewhere else becomes either uh, the institution elects to put forward additional, you know, uh, dollars, uh, student fees that a lot of the Power 5 schools tend to be significantly higher uh, supporting intercollegiate athletics. You know, there's no magic bag of money sitting under the, you know, president's desk or they just reach in and pull cash out. And I think that's the... The challenge that we're facing over the next couple of years is you can say you want to spend at a certain level, so where does that revenue actually come from? Because it's not going to be coming from any conference that we move to, whether we rebuild in some form or fashion or join the Mount West or join the AAC. Those dollars are just not – it's not going to be $35 million a year. Maybe it's 10 maybe it's 5 so you're going to have to come up with some alternatives on how you're going to fund your athletic program. And I think, John, we're still uh, going through and trying to figure some of those things out, just like our colleagues are at Oregon State. And, uh, you know, you, the answer is you're not going to be able to completely do it any one way, and I think that's a critical thing for us moving ahead is you're, you're going to lose some brand identity nationally just because you're not going to be – in front of as many eyeballs on TV as you were, you know, in, in this previous year. Can you help us with the role of Oliver Luck? What role does he play for you guys? Yeah, right now he's, and I say just an advisor, you know, as soon as all this went down uh, and you're in the middle of this, you know, kind of shit storm, the, the question becomes you need somebody else out there that you respect that maybe – you know, can step back a little bit and say, here's something I think you guys need to be thinking about, or here's somebody you need to talk with. And that's what we did when we got Oliver Luck. I worked with him, and Pat had worked with him. We both respected him. You know, he is Andrew played, you know, in the Pac-12, so he 
uh, had served as AD, you know, his resume, I'm not going to read that to you, but um, we just felt he had such a broad range of experience that we just wanted somebody that could maybe say, Kirk and Pat, this is something you guys need to be focused on that's outside the noise a little bit that we hear at our own institution. So Oliver has been really good to, you know, help us strive to think of what we can do together with Oregon State eventually, um, what conference affiliations might look like, and just be another set of eyeballs and ears to provide us some sound uh, advice moving forward. We all know recruiting is important. Would relegation to the Mountain West Conference or the AAC kill Washington State and Oregon State with athletes? Yeah, it's it's interesting, uh, and that's a really good question. And the reason I state it that way is that our initial set of conversations with our athletes, they were power five or bust. Um, that was their quote. Um, and that we got consistently back and forth. Then you start diving into that. And we had, you know, one of our athletes and one of our sports, you know, was like, well, I said, what does that mean to you? And they said, well, what that means, you know, we've got great nutrition advice. Uh, you know, we're competing at the highest level. And they actually went through some stuff that you would say, well, that's not really power five. That's really about the finances and the support infrastructure that they need to compete at a higher level that maybe don't exist in some of those other conferences. And so I think those are the kinds of things that we're going to start sorting through. And, you know, with revenues less and you're going to spend less, clearly something's got to give. And so I think we've got to just be really careful about going through and figuring out what things are we doing now that we're going to have to reduce and not do as much. And that will impact the abilities, I think, of many of our student-athletes to compete at the level that they're used to competing and have the support structure that they're used to having that just simply don't exist in some of the other G5 conferences. So I know that's a long-winded answer to that, but I, I think it's coming down as we have more discussions internally to what resources are going to be in place to provide the support infrastructure to compete, you know, at that, that higher level. Um, access to championships is important. And I think one of the things that, you know, the Mountain West talked to us about and talked to Oregon State about, and I think you've written a little bit about, is, you know, they feel pretty strongly that you add a couple schools and guess what, uh, you know, maybe we have uh, easier access to the football playoff. Some of the power four leagues might have where there are 20 schools or 18 schools all vying for a spot or two. So that remains to be seen, but uh, I think that's also something that is part of the discussion is can we make it to NCAA uh, opportunities out of a different league and can we compete well uh, coming out of a different league once you get to those championships um, that Those are all things that we're looking at, John. How does the Pac-12 Conference in this football season and the upcoming basketball season operationally hold events and hold a season with Pac-12 employees getting their resumes out there and all that uncertainty and obviously a doubtful future? Well, you know, um, the answer is we know yet. Um, we're working with George as our commissioner on, you know, hey, we've got a full year of competition and our partners uh, who are, you know, providing these dollars expect a certain level of service, you know, from the conference office. That's what they're paying for. So you can't just shut everything down and go, well, we hope it's going to be okay. 
So one of the things that we're going to be continuing to work on is, you know, how do we make sure we maintain that level of service over uh, the next year? If there's going to be some, uh, you know, iteration of the PAC-X that moves forward, you know, you're going to need some of the operations and things that we do now, so you don't want to disband those. So the next month, the next four weeks is really critical on our decision pathways on a lot of these things. And we're still trying to figure out how to best do it. What um, now do we need in place and not need in place? And uh, there's unfortunately no playbook <laughs> you go to and you just say, oh, well, here's the steps to do. And this is the challenge, right? You've got four schools still, you know, in the PAC, uh, the PAC-12. That could be down to two as, you know, as soon as the ACC makes a final decision. Um, and you've got two presidents then that are working like hell to try and figure out what's best for their own institutions and simultaneously trying to make sure that we're doing governance and moving the conference forward or keeping it operational uh, with, with Commissioner Kliakoff. So there's just a lot of moving parts now. I'm sorry I don't have more definitive no. answer, but I, I do think um, we can't just be hoping for clarity. We've got to drive ourselves to some sort of clarity in the next month. I'm going to make a leap, and I want you to tell me if it's too big of a leap. But there seems to be, uh, I mean, an obvious difference between four schools trying to make a rebuild in the Pac-12 versus two schools getting left behind. The ACC decision with Stanford and Cal feels like a big one. Is that too big of a leap? I mean, if it's four schools versus two schools, is it is it change the calculus uh, massively in your mind? You know, I think, uh, no, I don't think that's too big a leap, John. I think the key is that um, I'm proud of our, you know, athletic products, you know, Oregon State's nationally ranked in football. Um, we both feel great about our schools. If you sort of say, okay, if you list Cal, Stanford, Oregon State, and Washington State, and just ask fans nationwide, Cal and, and Stanford have just got really outstanding brand recognition. Um, and so to me, if you're going to do something, you need the power of some schools that got great brand recognition. And maybe the football product isn't what everybody would like it to be from their fan bases right now. I will argue Washington State and Oregon State, uh, especially where Oregon State is now, got a great, fantastic football product. So I just think if you've got those four, it just feels to me that you've got more doors open than if you got but. I don't have data to support that yet, and uh, but I, I just that's where I kind of currently uh, you know reside. Now I know our fan bases want clarity; they want a decision, um, and they want a certain decision. And part of the reason for us doing a, a group uh, to invite a couple conference commissioners to come in was that I knew one of the things that we needed to do was. Don't rush the decision. There's no reason we have to make these decisions over a weekend. So give ourselves some time to sort of evaluate, argue, look at positives and negatives. At the end of the day, some section of the fan base of Washington State, no matter what we do, is going to go, that was a bad decision. But I don't want anybody to go, it was so hasty, they didn't really take their time. So it's, a, it's an art and science. You want to make sure that we're being uh, deliberative or, or being careful, but you can't forever either. So to me, I sort of feel I've got, you know, on my calendar a big X on October 1 
I sort of feel by that point we have got to decide here's our pathway forward and aggressively pursue a single pathway, and we just can't keep alternatives open forever. And I think that, to me, gives us about another five weeks, which sounds like a lot, but it's going to go fast. George Klyovkov's role as the Pac-12 commissioner, you mentioned him operationally. Will he be involved in what happens next for Washington State? You know, right now, George is our commissioner. Um, We're still treating him just like the commissioner. He's running the Pac-12, and uh, we just haven't gotten into, uh, if we go direction X, we go direction Y, uh, who's doing what. And so I know fans and people out there are like, well, how come you haven't made a decision? Uh, Right now, we need George to focus on uh, running the conference office, representing us, at the college football playoff board and those things and that's where our focus is and and you'll know differently uh if if anything changes but we don't anticipate anything changing certainly in the near future you've got a football game against colorado state coming up this weekend will it feel normal to you or does this uh uncertainty constantly swim in the back of your head oh it's constantly swimming um and, and actually, it should be. Uh, this is not a small thing. And, uh, you know, as we open up our season, and, and I think we're going to play well against Colorado State, um, you know, it's always in the back of our head. Are we going to do the right thing here? Um, and interestingly, John, I would say, and I, and I was talking to some of our donors yesterday, and one of them pointed out and said, Kirk, we're going to know if the decision we make is the right one in probably three or four years. And, you know, it's not going to be the kind of thing that in the next two months everybody's going to go, man, that was the right decision. And I want to point towards can we make sure that we're taking care of our student-athletes in terms of travel expectations and them completing their degrees? Are we winning and competing for conference championships on a regular basis? And I think if you start going through some things like that, it's going to be hard to know even eight months from now. I think four years from now, people look back and say, yeah, it was tough, but they made the right decision, or, you know, hopefully not, saying they, they had an opportunity and they blew it. Um, so I think it's going to be tempting for everybody to worry about, is it the right decision in the next four weeks or five weeks? I think it's going to be longer term before we know it. Um, and, uh, and that carries with it a huge amount of responsibility to get it right. Um, and that's always in the back of my mind. Washington State and Oregon State fans are mad. They're, they watch the presidents of the Pac-12 conference, smart people, academics, do a whole bunch of dumb things that, in the end, leave Washington State and Oregon State holding the bag. I have these people reaching out to me, these fans of, of your program, fans of Oregon State, and they want to know what they can do to get involved. How do they harness their frustration and energy? What, what do you tell them? You know, harness energy by showing up and supporting our athletes. I, I, I've echoed that again and again and again. And for both Oregon State and Washington State, the worst thing that a fan can do is say, you know, we're not going to play USC anymore, so I'm not going to go to Corvallis for the game. Or, you know, UCLA is not going to be in Pullman, so I'm just, I'm just not going to go support us because it doesn't feel as big time anymore. Those student-athletes on the field, whether it's football, volleyball, basketball, pick your favorite sport, still need our support. Our college towns are still going to be active college towns on Saturdays. 
and we need people to go, life is different, but I'm still going to be there. I'm still going to support my alma mater, and that's the important thing. Uh, that's one thing. The second is I know nobody wants to hear this, but they got to be patient. And I know they want a quick decision, but at the same time, we're asking people to be patient. Uh, we're communicating with our fan base a lot. We're trying to be as open and transparent about our process. And, look, I get all kinds of angry emails and social media postings and stuff. But we're also telling people you got to work hard to be uninformed right now because we're trying to be really upfront about options and what we're doing. So come support our student-athletes. You know, be patient. Continue to pay attention to your column and others and what the universities are putting out, and that's what I ask people to do. So, Kirk Schultz, Washington State President, thank you. Thanks for your time. I appreciate you. Okay. Thanks, John. I'm sure we'll talk again yeah. over the next few weeks. So. For sure. Thank you. And there he goes. Okay. I'm pretty sure that Oregon State and Washington State fans are going to hear that interview, and you know, I don't know that you're going to feel better about it, and I don't know that that was the intention. You know, there's there's a part of being left behind in realignment and expansion that um, cannot be rectified, cannot be fixed with uh, a president, a university president who got left behind coming on to say, look, uh, here are our options. They're limited, and it's going to take us some time to figure out what we should do. I will be really interested to see if Washington State and Oregon State harness the the focus, the chip on the shoulder, whatever you want to call it, the um, of being left behind in a way that manifests itself on the field. And I do think from outside the Pac-12 footprint, you will find a lot of outsiders rooting for those two programs. Leave it here. You got the bald-faced truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Good stuff from Kirk Schultz, the Washington State president. I don't think it does anything to ease the frustrations of Oregon State fans and Washington State fans. Uh, But we have a college football week one that might do some of that. We'll talk about it coming up in the 4 o'clock hour. Bruce Barnum, the opponent for the University of Oregon on Saturday. He is the head coach at Portland State. He'll be joining us uh, coming up at uh, 524. Why don't you hear from that? Uh, here for that, uh, the uh, and a major league baseball team has has basically done what fantasy owners in fantasy baseball do that pisses everyone off. Stephen, what do fantasy owners do that pisses piss off the rest of the league? Uh, cut everybody right before the end of the season. Cut everybody. Leave them on the open market. Have the Angels done exactly that. Are they playing fantasy league? Stay tuned. B. FFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Well, we were talking about fantasy football, fantasy baseball in the opening segment, kind of what has to be trimmed from your life. If you're spending more time on your NFL, your Major League Baseball, or if you're spending more King. More time on DraftKings and gambling and all that. But uh, it's really interesting to see the Los Angeles Angels essentially letting a bunch of players go, putting them on waivers. Huge potential playoff implications because all of them can be claimed by teams for free beginning Thursday. Stephen Vaughn, what are the Angels doing here? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think they're... The, the crazy part is John is like Lucas Giolito for the Angels. They traded for him at the trade deadline. He hasn't been good, but they traded a top 100 prospect for him. So it wasn't like yeah. they just you know, got him for nothing. Like They traded real value for him, and now they just cut him for nothing. You know, saving some salary cap, I guess. I guess that would be it, but I, I don't know. I have no idea what they're yeah. doing. Waving the white flag. Hopefully uh, Shohei is okay with it. They're letting everyone know that uh, all their trade acquisitions are now available. Um, Matt Moore's out there. Uh, Ronaldo Lopez is out there. Hunter Renfro put on waivers. Uh, nearly they put nearly a quarter of their wa- roster on waivers, including uh, uh, a bunch of players. But the use of waivers, basically, um, in this way, is is a pet peeve of a lot of people who play fantasy leagues. Because you know, if you're playing a fantasy sports league, and I said this earlier, I'll say it again. I'm not a dabbler, okay? If I'm going to play, I'm really going to play. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going all in. It's how I do anything. Like, you might as well, if you're going to do something, do it right. Not, you know, scatter yourself in a million directions and do whatever. But sometimes when you play in a fantasy league, one of the most annoying things is when you do run into a team that maybe isn't playing very well, or doesn't have a great record, and they just put everybody in the waiver wire. They, you know, reshuffle their roster and leave, uh, you know, create a bunch of chaos and imbalance in the league. And then secondarily, the other peeve you have is when there are some owners in Fantasy League who just kind of give up on the season and they stop managing their roster, and yet you're in a competition or a game against somebody who is playing them that week. And you're like, hey, wait a minute, man. Start your best players. What are you doing here? Like, you know, everybody should be giving this a good faith effort. And I kind of wonder uh, if uh, all five of those Angels players, by the way, by the way, the the end result is if all five of those players are claimed, the Angels will save about $7 million in salary over the season's final month. And that would push their payroll beneath $233 million, which is the tax threshold. So if a player's not claimed, they would remain under contract with the Angels. And um, this is still a big story because, you know, a roster dump of this magnitude is, like, it's unbelievable. Like, you know, this is a team that's got Shohei Otani. This is a team that was trading for players, giving up prospects, and now is going, eh, never mind, we're not going to win. So, um, you know, I'm sure the Angels are going to hear it from Major League Baseball, and I'm sure Rob Manfred is huddled up right now going, okay, how do we stop this from happening in other years? How do we keep Fantasy League owners continuing to play? I'll tell you how you do it. You make the owner of the Angels get a tattoo. That's what good Fantasy Leagues do. You know, you finish last, you got to go get a tattoo. So you should have to get a horrendous tattoo if you finish in last and you dump all your roster. And uh, the Angels are certainly in that position. Um, We're going to play some punch and audio. Bruce Barnum. Portland State football coach is coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Uh, You heard Dan Lanning on this show on Friday. I wrote today about Dan Lanning at johnconzano.com, and I thought it was really interesting. You know, I didn't ask him this on Friday. I asked him this morning about his car, his first car. We all remember our first car. My first car that I got to drive was a family car. It was a 1977 Buick LeSabre. It wasn't a cool car. Dan Lanning's first car was a mid-1990s Plymouth sedan. It was burgundy. It had a cassette player and a radio in it. And I asked Lanning this morning, I said, you know, I never asked you this. 
because I knew that was his first car because I talked to his parents last year and wrote about it. I said, I never asked you this, but what do you remember about the car? And Dan Lanning says, well, I'll tell you what I remember. He says, you remember how you could go out and you could go to like one of those car stereo places and you could get uh, a CD player put in? And if you are somebody who's like 35 and older, you know that that was a cool thing to do. Because having a CD player in your car wasn't standard with those cars at that time. If you drove a car for, that had, you know, the year 1970, 1980, 1990 as part of its description when you went to DMV to register the car, uh, you you probably didn't have a CD player that was uh, built into the car. They didn't start doing that until you know, like the mid to late 1990s uh, when it when that was standard. So you would go over to the car stereo place. And you would pay, you know, anywhere if you were cheap, like 50, 60 bucks to maybe 150, 160 dollars to put in a CD player with detachable face, all that stuff. So Dan Lanning said he worked all summer because he turned 16 in April of, uh, of that year. He got the family car. It was a hand-me-down because it was his grandparents' car. That is classic. I love that his parents did that. Didn't go out and buy him a new car. They were both teachers. They get it. Boots on the ground. Keep his feet on the ground. Um, and so Dan Lanning goes out to like the car stereo place and he gets the CD player, except he soon discovered, as many of us did, that if he went faster than 60 miles an hour, he got static, which was the ultimate thing. Like it was the coolest thing ever. I haven't asked his parents, you know, Dawn and Janice. I haven't asked them if like that was by design to help keep young Daniel Lanning from driving fast. But he just said he figured out pretty quickly he had to drive under 60 miles an hour or he got a bunch of crackling on his CD player, which I find very interesting. And then, and then in the comments section of johnconzano.com, because I write about the car he's driving now as coach at the University of Oregon, and sort of the alterations, so to speak, to use it as a metaphor, the alterations that he will make from year one to year two with his coaching style. What did he learn last year? What, what can he change from last year? And so I kind of blended what I knew about Dan Lanning and learned about him before his first season to what he learned in his first season. And I, and I kind of, you know, used the metaphor of that car. Like, you know, he got that car, and he didn't just keep it. What did he do? He tried to improve it. Well, he's trying to do that with the roster this season. He's got a new offensive coordinator. He's got Bo Nix back. But uh, Dan Lanning had some interesting things to say about sort of what he is doing now as a head coach. You can read it at johnconzano.com. And the hope, if you're a Duck fan, is that Lanning is going to not just make an alteration that, you know, he's not going to put in a CD player, so to speak, in the Oregon machine. He was handed the keys by Rob Mullins. He was given this big contract extension. His buyout is now $20 million. And Dan Lanning's got the keys. He's not going to put a CD player in the Oregon machine. The Oregon machine's got a CD player, okay? And the other thing is, he's got to drive it faster than 60 miles an hour. You know, it's, getting to 10 wins was nice for Oregon and Dan Lanning, but he's got to drive this thing faster than 60 miles an hour or, you know, it's not really going to go in the way that Oregon fans want it to go. So read it at johnconzano.com. Check that out. Uh, sign up for a free subscription or a paid subscription. Whatever works for you works for me. Let's play some Punch It Audio. 
in the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, Gilbert Arenas gave some input. If he were the owner of the Portland Trailblazers, what would he do? Well, I'll give you a hint. It would not include trading Damian Lillard. Here's Arenas. Punch it. I'm not doing nothing. <laughs> Dame is off. Dame is off the trading blocks. Sorry. If you're the owner. Yeah. You, you, do, you do have the. A competitive. He's got four years. Oh, old. oh yeah, yeah, nah. You got the. Left. But I mean, nah. Katie, Katie had a similar situation with the Nets. It was like, yo, get me the out of here. But that was. I don't give a fuck about what they talk. That's the problem with these. In- Listen, even with LeBron and his decision. It was no real decision. If I can right. get a sign and trade, <laughs> the decision is you go there for 80 million because that's all they can give you. I'm not going to give you my 120, then trade you. No, no, no. Real decision is I got 120, they got 80. Good luck. Yeah. Right? I'm not going to sign you for what you want and then trade you to the team you are. Same thing with that. I have you for four more years. Good luck. <laughs> have fun. You can't sign an extension and get more money and then asked to be traded. Gilbert Arena sees the logic in what the Blazers are doing, sitting tight here looking for value on their investment. Steven, you've been preaching this. Yeah, no, that's the thing. Gilbert's right on to this. And if you're the owner, you're the GM of the Blazers right now, you get you got to get value back for Dave. You can't just give up what you get, you know, give him up for nothing because you know what? He's signed for 4 years. He made that decision to stay in Portland. I don't blame Dame for wanting out. But at the same time, I don't blame the day or the Blazers for trying to get as much value back. They have him for four years under contract. Dame wanted to sign the contract to get as much money as he possibly can. Again, no blame for Dame. I would do the same thing. I want as much money. But then if I want traded, you know what? They don't have to trade me. I am in the middle on this one because on one hand, I understand why Damian Lillard's frustrated and wants out. On the other, I think the Blazers' position is completely reasonable. They want full value. If they're going to trade Lillard. And guess what? They're looking over what the Rudy Gobert trade brought. They're looking at the Kevin Durant trade. And they're going, okay, if you're in that neighborhood, we want that kind of return on the investment. And here's the other thing. There are a lot of teams where I would go, hey, the distraction of what's going on is going to be too much to bear. And we're watching James Harden attempt that with the 76ers by coming out and calling his general manager a liar. He's just trying to make the situation untenable. But with the Blazers, it's not like they're a contender. It's not like the distraction of Damian Lillard in the early part of this season or the middle of this season or even if he stayed in Portland the whole season. It's not like that distraction is going to be so much that the Blazers can't overcome it. Well, and that's the thing, John, is the Blazers are in not a, they're not in a terrible spot for a rebuild. You know, Scoot Henderson, Shaden Sharp, those are two really good young players this Dame piece is very valuable. Like you want to get those draft picks, you want to get those those young players to team up with those guys and hopefully build. And then you're contending or you're trying to make the playoffs maybe even sooner than you think. So like this Dame piece is very important. You can't just give them away. You have to get full value back because you do have two good starting blocks that are 19, 20 years old. You got to team up around them. I think you got to team up around them. 
I also think the Blazers are going to make him wait. And it's going to come down, I think, in my mind, to whether or not Lillard will hold out. And I don't see him as a guy who likes to give away money that he is owed. And so I think he's always tried to get every penny that he could possibly get, every bonus he could possibly get. I know that when in the early part of his career, he's really tuned into being all NBA because he wanted the super max eligibility. And now I think he will be put into position where he either has to report and be a trailblazer or he's going to have to sit out. And I just don't see him sitting out. You know, he's not going to want to give the money back. That's 100%. I was going to say, and yeah. the fact that if he does sit out, I think that may take a blast to his likability in Portland. I think there's already some fans that have you know turned on him a little bit, but I think if he decides to sit out, not play, not honor that contract, I think even more fans may turn against him. Not that the fan base will ever fully do it, but I think there's a, there's a portion of them that already yeah. have and will if he decides to sit out. Yeah, I think he put himself in a tough position, or his agent did. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, talked to media about the factors that led to him naming DJ Uyunglele the starting quarterback. Here's how he uh, came to that decision. Punch it. You know, his body of work throughout, he just continued to get better and better. I do think there was a separation. We had two big scrimmages, and he played the best in those two. Um, I do think we got other guys in that room that uh, can compete and help us win games. Um, but I think the separator our, in our minds was really those, those two scrimmages. Jonathan Smith entered fall camp essentially with – Three quarterbacks that all could probably play. A little too soon, maybe, for Aiden Childs. Maybe. Saw him in the spring game. Thought he was fantastic. But he could have started Ben Gulbrinson. I really did feel like it was DJ's job to lose. But I like hearing that he went out and won it. Instead of, A, it just fell in his lap. Because I just think his experience in big games lends itself to what Oregon State's trying to do this year. You know, it's it, it's the last year as the, the Pac-12 as we know it. I think Oregon State's going to look to throw the ball down the field a little bit more. I think they're going to look to take a few more chances. And I think when they get into some environments where, like, you know, they were last season at Salt Lake City against Utah, and in certainly this season in the Friday finale against Oregon at Autzen Stadium, you're going to want a quarterback who's played in big environments. And DJ is that guy. Now, how about the backup position? Jonathan Smith went on to talk about what he sees happening at the backup quarterback position. Here's uh, Oregon State's coach. Yes, decision to be made because it is close, um, and we feel like we're going to take this week of work uh, and kind of make that call uh, closer to game time. Uh, obviously, you know, Ben, proven commodity, can, knows how to win games, um, and then Aiden's got some real real talent, and he's continued to impress. So we're going to let those guys get some reps for the week and, and make a call. That's really interesting to me because I, I think it's a really interesting question. What are you looking for, for with a backup quarterback? Are you looking for sudden change situation, guy who's got to enter the game if DJ gets hurt or goes down or has a bad game? Sudden change situation, do you want to go with the stability of a Ben Galbrinson who went 7-1 and one as a starter for you? Or do you want to go with the, uh, the potential upside of a still 17-year-old, you know, Aiden Childs, who is ridiculously young. Jonathan Smith knows he needs to keep Childs engaged. I've, I talked to Aiden's parents. I don't get the impression in talking with his mother and his father that they're in any hurry. And so it does remove one element of the potential problem there in having an Aiden Childs 
on your roster. But you also, you know, you got to make the right decision. You got to, I think you have to, because you can't BS your roster. And I think this is where Jonathan Smith could get in some trouble because I remember at the spring game, I was standing with Jaden Grant, who, who, you know, obviously is out of eligibility, but I'm standing with him on the sideline and, and just kind of talking to him while we're watching Aiden Childs play. And he's like, are you telling me that this kid, if he's the best player, you can't start him? Like, he's look at how good he is. And so I think players on the field probably know what Aiden Childs is and probably know that the keys will be handed to him at some point. I kind of lean towards Childs being the number two on this team, but I haven't seen practices. I haven't been there you know, for in meetings. I ha- I don't know what I don't know. And so I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this shakes out, so to speak, I, I always for go, Jonathan Smith. I always go back to Pac-12 Media Day. Anthony Gold described Aiden Childs as a baller. Like, and to me, that means, like, this guy can play, and he can play right now. And the way he described Gold Branson, a winner, the way he described DJ was huge. So, like, he actually described Aiden Childs, I thought, as the most yeah. endearing one. It'll be interesting to see, like you said, don't you think that Aiden Childs will get the, at least the four games on the field to keep that red shirt, but we will see him at some point this year? I would like to see him. Selfishly, I'd like to see him early when, you know, maybe in relief, uh, you know, early on when a game gets away and like to see kind of what he looks like. Because I think you get a picture pretty early if Oregon State can get ahead in some games of what he can be. But, yeah, I would just – I'd like to see a glimpse of it. And I think you have a great situation in that Goldbrinson – Went seven and one. I mean, it's hard to argue against a kid who went seven and one, and you know, as a starter, and put your put your team in position to win and win and win. And you know, the game that he loses at Washington came in, you know, a torrential wind, and you know, he just didn't have it. And they, you know, it was a really tough game. But uh, I, I just think Jonathan Smith's got a really good situation. He's got to be careful on how he sort of unpacks it, though. Dan, uh, Dan Lanning, Oregon coach, uh, what does he love about his team? Here's Lanning. Punch it. Yeah, I think we've got a really competitive team, right? Um, it doesn't matter really what we're doing on that field. The guys that are in that in that space, they want to win, right? And it could be a drill in practice, or it could be a two-minute period at the end of practice, or it could be a game. You know, these guys want to compete. Um, from a toughness standpoint, you know, that's still being shown. You know, it's a long season football. You're going to have bangs. You're going to have hits. You're going to get dinged here and there. We got to see what kind of team we look like at the end of the season, but obviously that starts with right now. We'll talk with Bruce Barnum, the Portland State coach, Dan Lanning's opponent in this chess match on Saturday at Autzen Stadium. Barnum will be joining us coming up in the five o'clock hour. But uh, love the competitiveness of the team. Not sure we're going to see it in week one. Week two at Texas Tech definitely need to see it. Uh, it's interesting that uh, Oregon will, as opposed to last year where they lose forty-nine to three in week one. Oregon will get a chance to open the season, knock the cobwebs off, get some procedural things out of the way, try to play a clean game, but then go to Lubbock, Texas in Week 2 to play a very dangerous Texas Tech team that you know, really will set the tone for the season Week 2 uh, coming up. Troy Franklin, Oregon wide receiver, talking about what he wants in Week 1. Punch it. Um, not beating ourselves, you know, not like beating ourselves, no self-inflicted wounds. Um, just executing everything at a high level um, and doing what we know we're supposed to do against a team like Portland State. Franklin said, doing what we know we're supposed to do against a team like Portland State. Bo next to Troy Franklin going to be a big connection for Oregon this season. Moving to the NFL where Jeff Darlington is talking about Sean Payton and the Broncos. 
Russell Wilson. Uh, is Peyton the quarterback whisperer when it comes to Russell Wilson? Punch him. I'm starting to wonder if Sean Payton understands the assignment. Uh, I... I he was brought to Denver as the highest paid coach, I think, I, I, just about we've ever seen. I don't know if he's making more or less than Bill Belichick, but he is getting paid exorbitant amounts of money to make Russell Wilson work. It is his job to fix Russell Wilson, not to bench him. Does he know the assignment? I love that. Sean Payton, his job's to win games, isn't it? Like, is, is that putting too much on Sean Payton? Like, sometimes you start to talk about... Like, is the mission for the Denver Broncos to win games, or is the mission for Russell Wilson to just look really good? Well, I guess those things go hand in hand. But, but, but it goes to the point of what if Russell Wilson just doesn't have that anymore? Maybe the backup right. is better, right? Like, is Peyton really gonna, just going to have to be force-fed to play Russell Wilson? That doesn't make sense. I just think it's really going to be a fun season to see what happens. And, you know, you're seeing all these roster moves, these tweaks at the end here to kind of sort out, you know, whose roster is going to look like what. But um, I don't know. I, I uh, you know, I look around the NFL. And we talked about, we talked about a week ago about the t- the nine, the eight or nine teams that could really win it. The Denver Broncos were not one of those teams. They, they could be a surprise though. I kind of include them with the Dallas Cowboys as a team there. I'm kind of looking at them going, did they underachieve a year ago? Could they suddenly, could they rise up and have a decent, the uh, decent season? I don't know. Two fans in baseball ran onto the field to give a hug to Ronald Acuna Jr. Punch it. Boy, we just had a fan come onto the field and right and tangle up with Ronald Acuna. Ronald's fine. He is up. But the fan has been taken to the ground by security. I think there might have actually been two fans. Yeah, there's two fans that came out toward Ronald Acuna in right field. This is absolutely unacceptable. The fact that a fan could even get that close to Ronald is absolutely unacceptable. And Ronald's fine. It all happened so quickly, and all of a sudden, there was the commotion in right field, and two fans converged on Ronald Acuna. The fans arrested by Denver police were jailed for trespassing and disturbing the peace. Third individual was also apprehended at Coors Field and cited for trespassing. No further charges are being pursued. Acuna ended up on the ground because as the security staff were wrestling with one of the men who came up and just embraced him, I would call it more of an embrace than a hug. The second guy came and kind of pushed, and Acuna fell over the first fan who was uh, on the ground. I don't know. I don't understand what's going on here, Stephen. Did they really just love him, or was this a dare, or what was going on here? I don't know, but... I, I'm with the announcers of this. How does that happen? How how do you allow fans to rush onto the field and get that close to the players, especially someone like Ronald Acuna Jr., who probably you know has a chance to win the MVP, maybe the best player in the National League? Like you can't be letting this happen. Still, like still, we can't figure out how to keep fans off the field and how to keep them away from the the, the action. I I just find it crazy that people want to do that and that we can't stop it either. Yeah. Do you think where do you stand on the idea that they shouldn't show it? That it that it glorifies it and that it encourages other people. I don't I don't think it. I think if they showed it, it wouldn't do anything. It wouldn't change our view on it at all because I think people that want to do it are going to do it anyways, regardless if they see it on TV. I like to watch it. Sometimes it's funny when they're not playing with the players and they're running down the field trying to score a touchdown on the police. But when they're coming up and they're actually affecting some of the players and touching the players, that's when I got a problem with it. I think that all of it is kind of ridiculous. I don't really understand it. I I get it. People do it, but um, I think in the end, um, 
you're looking at, uh, you know, a, a thing that we're not going to see the end of. And I remember, too, there was a time when you had, like, Morgana, who was running out on the field and kissing the players. You remember her? She was, uh, this was, might be before your time. She was running out. She would walk out on the field, and she would give a kiss to a player. Like, it, it was kind of charming, and they showed it, but it only encouraged other people, like, that this is okay to run onto the field. You're not on the stage. Don't climb on the stage. And, and I kind of think they were too nice to the guys. They kind of just gently wrestled them to the ground. I need a little more body slam from the security guards. Show that, the, you know, how about a tase? Uh, you know, are they not allowed to tase anymore? Give me, some, give me some good, yeah. I mean, what are we doing here? Don't tase me, bro. Something like that? I don't know. Anna's popping into the studio coming up. Uh, we will talk to Bruce Barnum, the, or, the Portland State uh, football coach. Also, uh, we'll give you the lowdown on the waiver wire as the NFL has trimmed down their 53-man rosters. We'll go around with the local players that you might be interested in. And uh, also, uh, what did Dan Lanning say about Bruce Barnum? It's not often you get coaches talking about each other in front of a game, but Dan Lanning did it. I'll play his sound coming up. Back to the bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Like, uh, we're at the point of college football season where the reporters have run out of questions. They're starting to ask ridiculous questions, and I think that happened maybe a week ago, and I think... They're starting to, uh, you know, ask about the punter. They're starting to ask about, you know, the backup, uh, backup left tackle. They're starting to act, ask. I just think there's some questions that should be stricken. Should not be allowed to ask certain questions as a media member. Like if you start asking and poking around about the long snapper and the punter, you should be sent out for a walk. Go take a walk. Anna has popped into the studio. Anna, first day of school this morning. Kids got dropped off. I went. It was very nice. It was nice to be at the school. It was nice to see the kids excited to go to school. Their school, not like my school. My school was a little rougher. Yeah. And my parents, by the way, this is how my parents took me to school on the first day. <laughs> they opened the front door and they waved. <laughs> and we lived eight or ten miles from school. Yeah. I had a walk. I walk. What? I had to walk to the highway, okay, to get a ride on the bus. You didn't walk eight miles no. to school. No, no, no. I had to walk probably through the equivalent of about three city blocks. Okay, but I had to walk to a highway. Yes, I had to stand on the side of the highway, two lane highway, Highway One Fifty Two in California. Hecker Pass. Hecker Pass. That thing's dangerous. It, also known as uh, it's not known as Blood Alley, but that's what I might have called it as a kid. But, you know, I'd have to stand out there <laughs> waiting for the bus. And the worst thing was the highway was kind of un- unobstructed. Yeah. Like, I could see about a quarter mile, half mile maybe. Yeah. So if I was late getting to the, you know, where I, the p- pickup spot yeah. was, yeah, I would be, like, running, and I could see the bus. Oh, brutal. And, it was, and, and I was running thinking, I hope the bus can see me. And I'm in a dead sprint. My backpack's flopping around behind me. Jeez. You know, my slower siblings are in tow. <laughs> I, I'm just, you know, it's kind of <laughs> like when people say when you're out, when you're out like camping, if you encounter a bear. Yeah. And they say, you know, do you do you play dead or do you run? You get and, big. And people will be like, if you do run, you only need to outrun one person. Oh, you know what I mean? Like, it's the opposite when you're running for the bus. 
you just need to be one person to be able to catch the bus and stop it. <laughs> and uh, I could just remember a few times running for that bus and having the bus driver mostly would see you and you would stop. And yeah, would it even stop or would it just slow to 20 and you'd have uh, to hop on it, it stop. while it was still moving? It would stop because it was a bunch of rural kids that were riding it. And I'm sure they were like, there's John yeah. running for the bus again. Do they call his, you Johnny? It is corduroys. Uh, no, I no. got, I was known as John. Okay. And then, of course, like around kindergarten, first grade, second grade, I walk in and there was John A, <laughs> John S, and I was John C. Uh-huh. And after several years of John C, yeah. people shortened it to JC. Okay. So I went by JC. That makes sense. All the way to high school whatnot. But yeah. uh, they're like, there's JC running for the bus again. Well, but, there were a fair amount of people that just put their kids on buses. There's nothing wrong yeah, with that. There was an awful lot of parents. I think our world's gone soft. There was, a, there was quite a few parents out front of the school taking pictures and doing <laughs> sentimental things with a glassy eye. As their kids were going into school. And in fact, oh, who had glassy said eyes? school, no, disregarding that question, who had said, glassy said eyes? school, said school that we drop our kids off at also allowed the parents to come into the school. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that today because I that's a new one. Uh, in years past, I don't remember walking the kids all the way into their classrooms. Very entitled parents. On the first day of school. And I felt like when the doors opened today, the parents just bum-rushed the entrance. Yes. And barreled their way in. And it was like, what are the teachers going to do? You know? They, they can't, can't really stop, stop us if we way. all go. So, yeah. I, I, I had mixed feelings about that because I get the teachers probably want to get your routines going. And I kind of felt bad. But, oh, well. It happened. It was cute. We got pictures of the kids at their desks and whatnot. Did you? Uh, you. Did you, you lingered. Did you catch? I only lingered. I, 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 I'm going to be honest. I'm going to own this. You know, uh, I don't the, think it's a bad the thing. The year's 2023. I can do this. I got a little glassy-eyed. Not because the kids were going off to school and I was happy that, you know, no longer will they be around during the house, like some of the moms that were there. <laughs> moms uh, not, only? Not because, whatever. not because, like, you know, it was like I'm sad and I'm scared about my kid going into school. I got a little wispy because I know how fast it goes. You know, I got a 20-year-old. Yep. I, I know that it's a blink. It's a blur. And I was watching our kids, in particular the 9-year-old. She went and took her seat in her classroom. She had her back to the door. She never turned to look to see if we were there still. Yeah, it's like life of pie. The tiger doesn't look back. She never looked back. That's a good thing, though. It you is. You want them to be independent and feel safe and not feel like, you know, they they need to rely yeah. on us in that way, right? They, neither one of them really looked back. No, they didn't. Uh, we did get a note. Did you catch the note from uh, no. the 7-year-old's uh, school teacher? Okay, I'm going to read it on air. We had a great first day. Smiley face. I think we are all tired and should have a good sleep tonight. The kids are wonderful. I'm excited to build our blah, blah, blah. We are a social group. That's a big red flag for me. Okay? And I let the kiddos know that tomorrow there may be a few changes in the table spots in order to best help them do their best listening. Oh, boy. Parents, go talk to your kids. Tell them to behave themselves. Is, do you think our child's part of the problem in that? I don't know. I mean, she's pretty social. Basically, the teacher's saying... Too much talk. having a hard time getting their attention. They're chatty. They're too chatty. I think teachers came out of the pandemic with a, with that problem. Like, facing that problem. 
because I think kids were not used to sitting and listening, you know, and now it's yeah. especially like about the second graders right now. Yeah. Like they were kindergartners when that thing hit. That's true. You know, they yeah. got kind of a interruption of their, oh, hey, yeah. learn how to be a good listener. Yeah, our children turned feral during the pandemic, <laughs> along with many feral. others. Yeah, yeah. Feral. feral. I love that. Hey, by the way, we were talking about this earlier with Stephen. Stephen, your kids go back today? Uh, no, they do not. They go back next week. Oh, wow. Hug them up, man. Uh, let, me, let me ask you this. Uh, Anna, we were talking about fans who run onto the field. Oh, I saw that. That was going to be one of my five at fives. You Ridiculous. can still use it. Ridiculous. How does that happen? Why is that a cool thing to do? It's not. It's not a cool thing Why to do. Why does it happen then? It's a dangerous thing to do because the people lack boundaries. What, do they, what should we start doing to fans who run on the field to deter it? Uh, tase them. I agree. Tase them. Because, I mean, in a situation like this, supposedly what they wanted were selfies and autographs, but from a security standpoint, that is a security failure. What if those fans did not have good intentions Right. and you wind up with like a Monica Seles kind of situation? I mean, that's ridiculous. That should never happen. Those people should be banned from ever attending a game at that stadium. I had the same thought in that. I, I want to go further because I watch a lot of TV shows. Okay. I had a thought, like, what if in a terrorist situation, like, they wanted to run onto the field and they they now know they can get access to a player just by sending two people onto the field and having them run at an outfielder? Like, sure. it's not a that's not a good security message from Major League Baseball. And I know it, within, it comes within reason. Uh, so much of what we're seeing in stadiums now is teams selling access and they're selling the idea you can get close to the action. Yeah. Oregon Stadium is even guilty of this. Like their new west side of the Research Stadium. Part okay. of their pitch is, you know, you are the it's the closest seat in the conference to the field. Mm. You can be you can be closer at Oregon State than any other field. Well, okay, that's cool, except if you're a security guard. Yeah. Because now you've got to go, okay, if somebody comes over the railing, I don't have as much berth there. I don't have a margin to yeah. get to that person. And by the way, some of the security personnel I've talked to him. Look, I worked security at Candlestick Park in yeah. San Francisco. That was not an easy place to work security. Oh, I'm sure because it's porous. I mean, there's so much ground to cover. Um, you'd have to have a gajillion security guards to be able to, you know, what, man every 10 feet so that you could get within running distance yeah. of somebody coming over the fence? I had uh, – they had, my position that I had at Candlestick for, yeah. for like, Monday night football game uh -huh. was I was on the field – facing a section that was in the end zone. Yeah. And it was my job to face the section for the entire game with my back to the field, which... You're you, one of those guys? You sometimes had to peek over your shoulder. Yeah, yeah. But they took us, and I was in my 20s, Yeah. they took us and put us in that position because they knew if somebody jumped the rail, they needed somebody who could get to somebody. Like, yeah. they didn't put, like, a... You know, we had like 60 or 70 year old people who were also working security, but they would put them more in like usher like situations. And but we were also told grab them and hold them uh -huh. and wait for San Francisco PD. Yeah. But I don't know what would have happened. Like if somebody comes over the rail with a, you know, weapon or fork or a knife, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't I don't know what they're going to do. You know, I never even thought about it. I forgot that you had that job. That's what else did you learn that you like? You were there before you went there as a journalist? Yeah, I worked security. That's so crazy. Just for one, one NFL season. 
A whole season yeah. you were? But we were... So what do we need to know about Candlestick Park that you learned that the rest of us don't know? The, I would say that, it, yeah, there's a section of hundreds and hundreds of people, and there's one of you. Hmm. But you can give the illusion of security, and that's why I believe they put the security guards in well-marked jackets in yeah. prominent locations. There's way more fans than security guards. Yeah. But just the idea that, you know, and at the end of the game, San Francisco PD would come out with horses and, you know, a show of force. Yeah. Like, you, you know, it, was like you, it wasn't like you were really doing anything. Okay. I never had a problem. Yeah. Never had a problem. Got to see the game. Phil Sims and Ronnie Lott got into it on one Monday night football game no not way. far from where I was. And, you know, we're jawing at each other. So it... What a cool experience. Yeah, it's a cool though. experience, but it was, like, it was freezing, freezing cold. Couldn't say what I wanted to say yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, It was cold. Sure. That was the worst thing. Okay. About being at Candlestick Park, you know. And I was working not for me. I wasn't making the money. Oh, how did... Wh- I, my community college baseball team oh, got the money. I see. I got the work. <laughs> This was a this was pre nil, okay. This is when not only did you not get anything, not, you didn't just have to play, you also had to go work. Is this the same community college baseball team that uh, stuck you at a Stanford baseball camp and threw a Stanford T-shirt? No, on you? that was Stanford. Oh, that okay. was just Stanford that did that. For people who don't know, like you see these colleges, and I would include you know all the Pac-12 schools in that rank. Who put on summer baseball, volleyball, soccer camps? Yeah, um, you know they put us in Stanford uniforms. We were community college players. <laughs> Stanford was coming off a national championship. You know, David McCarty, Jeffrey Hammonds, they were, those guys, Mike Musina, were all headed off to be drafted in the first round, and they had a bunch of community college players in Stanford uniforms working the camp. I was getting paid. Yeah, but I'm sure <laughs> the parents, as they were dropping off their campers. The moms were smiling and making eyes at you, you know. Like, <laughs> as sure as they were dropping off their campers, they were going, those are st- young Stanford baseball players. I don't think you could get away with that these days. I don't know. Maybe with you could. Instagram, you Man. know, people would want to know. That's hilarious. The worst part was when kids would go, can you sign my jersey? What did you do? And I just, it was just a moral conflict. Like, do you just sign it? You know, do you sign it, Jeffrey Hammonds, and then <laughs> have the kid go off and be like, Mom, look, I got Jeffrey Hammonds to sign my jersey. Or... Do you scribble yeah. indecipherable right. or do you sign your actual signature? We had a conversation about this amongst us, and I had decided I'm just going to sign my actual name okay. because I don't feel good about like a scribble that the kid's going to go, well, who is it for eternity? He's going to have this poor jersey. Oh my so, gosh. you know, I'm sure these kids are walking around with jerseys going, who's this John, you know, Costanza? What's this guy's name? I don't know. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'd go for tasing people who run onto the field at sporting events or at least a good body slam. Like, I think, I, I think that should be treated like it's. You know, like Lionel Messi, he's got this like Navy SEAL guy who shadows him while he's on the field. Yeah. He's walking up and down the sideline. And you think a fan runs onto the field at Miami and tries to hug Messi that they're not going to get like contorted like in a bad way? Like it's, 
I, I just think they let them off. That let those two fans off easy in Denver. More fans who try to do that, who don't understand boundaries, should be taken down in a harsh way but as a deterrent to other people who even think about doing it. What are they worried about? What do you mean? Why aren't the security guards? Are they worried about getting sued? Liability issue. Are they being told? Just hold them like like, like I re- was re- like retailers dealing with shoplifters. I don't know. I mean, I'd be I'd be pretty vocal about this if I were a player, somebody that was actually, you know, their job was to be on the field. Yeah, if I were, uh, you know, we've seen players like Mike Curtis, Mad Dog Curtis, play fans have run onto the field and the, they get decked by a player. Yeah. And then the league tells the player, don't do that. Oregon had a player who did that uh, a couple of years ago as a fan went onto the field. And Oregon had a player that knocked uh, down the intruder and then was told, the, you know, don't do that. You're going to get sued. Because you know what happens? It's like the burglar breaks into the house and then trips and cuts himself <laughs> as he's breaking into the house. And they go, oh, you're, you know, your house was dangerous as I broke into it. It created a liability that, that maimed me. Um, you know, I just, I, I would support, you know, more, a little more violence. We had a listener who called in earlier and said, doesn't like hockey anymore because there's not enough fights in it. <laughs> you know? Maybe the security guards should be MMA fighters. Mm-hmm. And they go, have at it, man. Spar. Just have at it. It's just, it's completely uncalled for. Do you think television plays a role? Because it's kind of like, you know, I'm going to blame TV news a little bit here. When TV news goes to a protest, mm-hmm. you're kind of glorifying the protest. It, and we are often told, hey, in the case of some of these heinous crimes, don't say the name of the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. The fact that we saw this video all over social media, mm-hmm. these two guys who wanted to get selfies and autographs, maybe, um, ended up uh, you know, with their mugshots out there. Are they glorifying these two players? Yeah, these that two might people? be part of the problem because now we know who they are and they're getting the notoriety they obviously were seeking. Um, but I mean, it's like, it's kind of the same concept as streakers, like in the NFL, you know, people that show up and go running across the field, they're doing it for the attention and we eventually talk about it and TV talks about it too. Well, yeah. And it's like, uh, you know, there've been well-documented cases of like Instagram models who will do this, run out onto the field of the Super Bowl trying to get followers, you know, somebody notice me, somebody, Mm -hmm. you know, take my mug shot. And and I'll streak on the field and try to, this is my moment, I'm going to seize it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do, in TV news, did you guys ever wrestle with, hey, should we not cover a protest? Yeah, we Meaning, have those conversations. Because like, if you don't cover the protest, is there a protest? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times the protest goes on either way, but we definitely had those judgment calls to make. And some of it depended on um, how many uh, demonstrators the police were anticipating the would be out there. Because obviously we couldn't cover every protest. There's like a protest every weekend in Portland for something else. So we had to make certain decisions on what to cover and not. And, you know, the size of the demonstration certainly warranted, um, you know, discussion. I, I often wonder because, like, you know, let's be real. There's now another hurricane headed towards Florida this time. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm kind of going, okay, I'm going to wait and see. What happens here? But I noticed that, like the words that were being used as media who were forecasting this hurricane making land, were catastrophic, potentially life-threatening. Like you know, just why don't this? Why doesn't TV news just talk about what's go- actually going on? It's Category Five hurricane. 
Um, you know, this is the warning level. Why do we have to have catastrophic and life-threatening in the headlines? Well, I don't think they're necessarily making it up. I think they're taking information from meteorologists that are looking at the hurricane based on computer models, and when it's still offshore and at that strength, yeah, it does carry the potential for catastrophe. But I agree that over time, like we saw with the situation in Southern California, there was a lot of chatter about Hurricane Hillary and how it was going to be devastating, and it was the first storm of its kind to hit Southern California. And I do think, I mean, while I'm glad there was not serious damage and serious loss and in injury or human life, like, it, 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 it doesn't help the media when there's that much buildup and then what we see are like raindrops and puddles. Yeah, but I think the media won. Thing, I though. think the news agencies that ham- not long term that hammed it up. I don't think people are going to hold it against them because people are going to go, oh, you know, it was the weather; it just dissipated. It wasn't as strong as it might be. I think you kind of get a pass with it. it it's kind of what, like yesterday, I was talking about ESPN. You know, the clickbait headline that they had, you know, about Matthew Stafford's wife saying mm-hmm. he wasn't getting along with players. I had a longer, deeper conversation with a national media member last night about that. And, I, you know, his point was he believes ESPN is the guiltiest offender of them all, that they are sort of hollowing out journalism and have gotten rid of a lot of their quality writers and traded for headlines and clicks. And that may be the case long term. In the in the interim, it's it's not as obvious. The 5 at 5 is coming up. We promise you substance next. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Well, we had Kirk Schultz, the president at Washington State, on the show earlier today. If you missed it, Schultz essentially said he has circled October 1st on his calendar for some clarity on where Washington State and Oregon State will be. Punting the decision down the road a little bit, he said also that the first decision or the optimal choice would be a rebuild of the Pac-4, including Stanford and Cal, into something greater. He said there was a definite difference if it's four versus two. He also said that a merger or a semi-merger with one of the other group of five conferences is on the table as well he expressed he expressed some frustration he dropped uh dropped a a word that the fcc does not like during the interview steven were you surprised that he uh he used the s word yeah i i was a little bit uh you know i think most people are pretty you know they pretty they pretty know like hey we can't be cussing on these interviews but you know what maybe just he just so flustered by the whole situation he couldn't even contain himself it just came out swirling in bleep but it's a good it's a good way to describe basically basically a bleep storm yeah you know what a bleep storm is anna i can guess starts with an s and then a storm. Oh yeah. Okay. Get yeah. It. Get it. I like that he. I like that he was a little salty. I think it was as salty as a university president could get. I also think Washington State fans are frustrated. Um, they're you know they want action. They want clarity. They want direction. So do Oregon State fans. I don't blame any of those fan bases. Truthfully, the fan bases did nothing wrong. The universities did nothing wrong. The presidents in the room did some dumb things. 
I think the group of presidents for the Pac-12, uh, it, you know, the comment was made to me by a source, like, never has have so many smart people done so many dumb things, you know? You often will look at people and go, Why, how in the world did you do that? Like, you're a sensible person. Well, that happened over and over when it came to the Pac-12 presidents. But Kirk Schultz, president of Washington State, um, gave an interview. If you missed it, we've got a podcast of that interview that will be up shortly. Uh, also, on tomorrow's show, Jonathan Smith, the Oregon State football coach, will be joining us tomorrow. And uh, he will talk about their season opener as uh, it pertains to uh, this week at San Jose State. Are they at a disadvantage? Are they at an advantage? Well, Jonathan Smith said there was some advantage to walk, watching San Jose State play against USC last week. I think there are there's some advantages of being able to see their, their first game on tape. I think there's some disadvantages of them, you know, getting their first game and the kinks and the mechanics that come with that, uh, working through that. And so usually you make a huge jump in improvement from week one to week two. And so for us, we're headed into week one. They're going into the week two. And then being able to see them on tape, compete at a high level against a really good football team. Um, they went toe-to-toe with those guys for a long time. A couple of plays separated the game. Um, but it, they had our attention, but it raised our urgency recognizing how, how good a football team this is. Well, I like how he said that. They had our attention, but it raised our urgency. He's evolving. Yeah. He's growing. Uh-huh. Dan Lanning's growing. I wrote about that today. But tomorrow, Jonathan Smith will join us 520 for an interview. It'll be fresh off practice. My job will be to try to snap him out of his talking points and get some real answers from him. His job will be to be, um, you know, forthcoming and entertaining while not giving away too much of his game plan. Maybe he'll drop a profanity. Ooh, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Bruce Barnum definitely going to drop a profanity on his appearance today at 520. Oh, I look forward you to know, it. He, you know he will. He's not going to let Washington State's president be the only person to drop a profane <laughs> word on this show. Bruce Barnum, the odds on Barnum... Dropping a profanity are minus two twenty. <laughs> Steven, you yeah, take that? I think you're right. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's where smart money is. It's because you get him comfortable, and then he almost forgets he's on radio. I feel like so. It's like yeah. at the start of the interview, I can play, I can relax a little bit. But as we get a couple minutes in, I got to be ready for the dumb button. All right, be ready for it, Bruce Barnum, coming up about five twenty. Anna's going to do the five at five here. No profanity expected in this one. I'll give you five to one odds that Anna uses profanity. All right, here we go. The five at five. The five at five. Philadelphia Eagles making some roster moves, including cutting wide receiver Devin Allen. Uh, we know him as Oregon wide receiver and Olympian. He did miss the first part of Eagles training camp with a calf strain. He flashed some potential with a 73-yard kickoff return in the preseason final, but he'll likely just find a place on the practice. It's kind of a good move for him because now he gets to compete with, you know, he had to go and run in the world championships, and he gets to focus on track and field. As much as he wanted to make the NFL roster, his bread and butter is track and field. And so, I, you know, he's probably disappointed. But you can't go and compete in the world championships and then bounce back and hope to make a 53-man roster. It's too challenging. Uh, Also, other cuts. I don't know if you're going to get into this. Uh, Jack Coletto, the 49ers cut Coletto, the uh, Oregon State fullback. I expect that they will try to retain him. I was talking to some reporters in the Bay Area who said that the coaching staff really liked him. 
and uh, would potentially try to keep him around in some form or fashion. His agent may have some other ideas. Uh, Coletto's this really smart football player. I expect, you know, he if he's going to find a spot, it might not be with the Niners, who have some depth at, at his position. They're a really good team. Uh, other players who got waived, did you see notable players, Stephen? Anybody jump off the map at you as I... Scroll through the names. I'm looking for locals. But yeah, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Former Duck quarterback Anthony Brown. He just got released by the Ravens. Mm. Uh, he started a couple games last season. I saw he got cut. Anthony Brown getting cut. Do we have word on uh, Jaden Grant in the Las Vegas Raiders? I will research as uh, right now. I have not seen anything yeah, yet. I haven't, I haven't seen anything. I haven't seen the Raiders cut list. This is the most Raiders thing ever. <laughs> but like, I see, it, I can find every other team. I'm well, assuming Grant uh, didn't make the team. Well, but the question to, is, according to yeah. Dashell, yeah. Nick Dashell, an hour ago, he said looks like Jaden Grant made the 53-man roster. What? Oh. Gotta love that. Same with Luke yes. Musgrave, but that was you know second round pick. He was gonna make it anyways. Gotta love that. Alex Austin cut by the Bills. Trayshawn Harrison cut by the Titans for the Beavs. Anna, number two. Go. Gosh, that just emphasizes how tough it really is, huh? Uh, Speaking of tough, Jaguars coach Tuff Peterson, Doug Peterson, uh, had to make a hard cut today. The Jaguars announced that tight end Josh Peterson, the coach's own son, was waived as part of the team's cut down to 53. The younger Peterson was an undrafted free agent out of Louisiana Monroe. Bounced around in his career, spent some time with the 49ers, Saints, and Chiefs, and now cut by his own dad. 18 minutes ago, Raiders finalized their roster, and Jaden Grant is on the 53-man roster. Right. He's a walk-on. Who bets against Jaden Grant? Nobody. Don't bet against Jaden Grant. Uh, That's a good story, though. Look, cut by his own dad? Yeah. Sorry, son. Show business, not show family. What's worse, being cut by your dad or being cut on your birthday like the guy in the Browns? Dad. Dad. 100%. Birthdays can come and go. But uh, that's that's a tough one. Well, that's uh, that's really tough. But it does show you, again, to your point, uh, Anna, that, uh, you know, when you're think, thinking about how difficult it is to make an NFL 53-man roster, it's not just talent. It's circumstance as well. So uh, really interesting to kind of to kind of look look at that. Anna, good number three, go. Number three, uh, USC head coach Andy Enfield giving us an update about Bronny James. I don't know how I missed this. I guess we were busy in July. I didn't know Bronny James had cardiac arrest uh, during a workout last month. So head coach is saying that he's doing extremely well. He's in class. Everyone's hopeful he'll return to the court. We have to be patient and take it step by step. So this was an episode on July 24th, if you were like me and living under a rock. Um, He went to the hospital for three days, and it turned out that his cardiac arrest was an anatomically and functionally significant congenital heart defect, which can and will be treated. That was released from the James family. So emphasizing there that this is fixable. He can still play. Does this pump the brakes, though, on all the, you know, the storybook idea? Like, you know, we want him in the league. We want him in the league on dad's terms and dad's timeline. And Like, does it give you perspective? I, 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 like, to me, I, when I heard that he was collapsed, yeah. my first thing was, did he make it? 
and then they, yeah, yes, he survived. And, you know, there was an AED and, you know, okay, is he going to be okay? And But why, like, do you feel like there's a unspoken rush to get him back, even though they say there's no rush to get him back or to get the timeline back together? Or? What I'm curious about is how he got to this stage of playing basketball without having some indication of this congenital heart defect. I mean, we've learned locally from the good family, the Hellers, and the Heller Foundation, the parents of David Heller, that Central Catholic high school player who collapsed and died with a heart defect, that it can just happen. You can be a healthy, athletic high schooler and not know that anything is wrong with your heart until something goes terribly wrong. So, I mean, I would hope that, (laughs) I just would hope that everything that they're doing is erring on the side of keeping that kid alive and healthy. Do you think there's a chance that he doesn't play for USC this year because of this? I, like if they then they say you what we're gonna work on this and train to get to the NBA. I have no knowledge of his medical condition. I haven't talked to doctors. I haven't talked to family members. But there's part of me that would feel more comfortable about him going slow, and that's where I why I ask the question: Does this ruin the timeline of the fairy tale of the documentary crew? Of you know what I mean? Like hey, there's a human being involved here. Yeah. Who's supposed to be a really nice kid. Yeah. And. Yeah, let's just make sure he's okay before everybody rushes forward. By the way, an update from Raiders PR. Raiders PR telling me that Jaden Grant has been waived, hmm. did not make the final roster. So Raiders Public Relations just saying a few minutes ago that he was among the players waived, but keep an eye on him potentially making the practice squad. Jack Coletto in the same boat with the 49ers. So just an update there to clarify. All right, Anna, go on. Uh, well, remember Sister Jean uh, from Loyola? Yeah, how old is she now? She's 104. Okay. Still kicking. Uh, <laughs> she, remember, so she's the chaplain for the Loyola men's basketball team. She became kind of like this, you know, awesome mascot when uh, they went on that NCAA run. Oh, what was that, two years ago? Now, um, she's... Doing well. In fact, she threw out the first pitch at the Brewers and Cubs game and reportedly threw it better than uh, 50 Cent and Conor McGregor. Oh, come on. No. From her wheelchair. Did you see 50? Or is it 50? Did you know. see him throw that pitch? No, I don't remember. It was remember. nowhere near. It was closer to first base. Well, there you go. So she did better than him. Yeah, I got a question. What? She's 104. Yeah. All right. It's going to sound... This is going to sound... Are you going to say something No, it's, it might be a little abrasive. You? Abrasive? I don't know that I'd want to be 104. Oh, well, that's fine. I'm not saying she shouldn't be 105, but I'm just saying that's, that's kind of old. That's getting up there. So? Like, she's pushing for a world record here. <laughs> Ripley's Believe It or Not is going to show up any time now and just be like, this is amazing. We need to put you in the museum. Doesn't it really depend on what kind of a 104 you are, you know? Yeah, quality of life? Yeah. I'm sure she's got, you know, she's got a reason to keep going. 
<laughs> they keep trotting around at games. No, I just I just watched this first pitch, <laughs> and I understand that 50 Cent, you know, it was a bad pitch, but he was at the pitcher's mound. They rolled Sister Jean up right to the dirt, right what on the mean? plate. What do you mean he rolled? She was in a wheelchair. She's in a wheelchair. She didn't stand for the pitch? No, she no, underhanded it from the wheelchair. Did to... you miss the part where she's 104? Yeah, but I kind of think if you're 104, you know, she didn't have, like, a physical impairment in her normal life so this is just age that is causing her now to not be able to stand and deliver the pitch wow okay should you be yeah. able to like if you're 104 105 deliver a pitch from halfway to home plate that's a fair question it's a fair question i know it's harsh but the bald face truth's the name of the show wow. should you be allowed to deliver a honorary pitch <laughs> from anywhere shy of the pitcher's mound I don't think so. <laughs> You're on record. I'm just saying. She can roll it up there. You uh-huh. need to pass a physical test to be able to throw out her first pitch? Is that what you, you're saying? you got to go 60 feet 6 inches, or it's not a pitch. Uh-huh. Okay. Is it a hittable ball <laughs> from Sister Jane? Fair question. I'd like to get her on the show and ask her that. <laughs> Griller. Good for her, though. You know? Good She's, for her. What? <laughs> I always say that when I see people jogging. You know, good hey, good for, for them. them. Good for them. Look at them out there running like I should be. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to number Moving five on. before you offend someone else. Sorry. Um, I didn't even know that Blue Marlins were this big. But this crew of the Pipe Dreamer in the Mid-Atlantic Fishing Tournament reeled in an 889-pound Blue Marlin over the weekend. Wow. 889? Earned them more than a million dollars in this uh, competition that drew 181 sport fishing crews from up and down the East Coast. By the way, one of the boats belongs to uh, NBA Hall of Famer Michael Jordan. But anyway, this, this fishing crew has been fishing together for the better part of two decades. They've got some experience. They reel this thing in really early in the competition and then... Waited to see if anybody else beat them, but 889 pounds took the prize. 889 pounds. And that's only the third largest marlin that's been hauled in as part of that competition. You know, um, we always see bigger being better when it comes to fish. Yeah. But what if that's just a fat fish that didn't exercise and ate poorly? You know what I mean? Like you are on a roll. I'm today. just kind of thinking about that. Like what, the first thought I had was awesome. That's an amazing fish. That fisherman should be really happy because we kind of equate bigger is better when yeah. it comes to fish uh-huh. in most cases. Yeah, I would have to hear from an expert fisherman. Yeah, because sometimes with livestock, you know, I raised pigs as a kid. <laughs> okay. There was a certain point where the if the pig was overfinished is what they would say, uh-huh. it had too much fat on it. Right, it wasn't good. Yeah. Is it is it possible this thing this what is it sort marlin? It's a marlin. Is it possible this marlin was just uh, you know was a couch potato? Are you saying you want like one. you want like the lean muscle? Is that what you're saying? Just, like a I'm lot of saying, muscle but just lean. I'm just wondering if there's a range. If a fisherman could tell me like, hey, when you're catching a marlin, you know, once you get over 800 pounds, that is a lazy marlin. It's just for maybe, show. Maybe it's just big boned. <laughs> maybe it's, yeah, it's short for its height. I read this story and I thought, did they check the marlin to see if there were weights in it? Ooh, mm. that's another one. But no. <clears throat> that's another one. Mm-hmm. 
There you go. That's the five at five. That's well done, Anna. Oh, thanks. <laughs> what? I don't think it's offensive for me to ask if it if it's really an honorary pitch. If if it's not done from relative proximity to the mound. Uh-huh. Because there does become a point where yeah. it's not a pitch. Like, it's okay to honor her. Yeah, it's just We're, a toss. It was a toss, John. Yeah, but bring it's, Sister Jean out. It's called a ceremonial first pitch. Nobody usually throws a strike anyway. So what's the difference between letting differ. her... I watch every one of those, and I look... You've seen most ceremonial first pitches end terribly. But, Anna, you said the key word, pitch. It's a first pitch, not a first toss. Ceremonial. Yeah, it, but can't they just... Okay, let me just say this. And you tell want her me, out there with a pitching machine? No, just tell me... Like T-ball? I don't need her in uniform. I don't need her <laughs> she running... She uniform. I don't need her running poles before the game. You know, get, I don't need her out there stretching, you know, in the outfield, playing catch before the first pitch. She's 104. I'm just saying, is it all that bad if they would have just brought her out uh-huh, and? and said, Hey, everybody, it's Sister Jean. Yeah. You know, let's recognize her yeah. with a big round of applause. She's right. here. She's 104. Yeah. That's pretty darn impressive. She also was chucking the ball not to the catcher but to the mascot. So if you want to, you know, quibble on it's the not details here. It's not a pitch. <laughs> I don't think it's a pitch unless the person you're throwing it to has catcher's gear on. I don't think it's a pitch unless you're delivering it from the vicinity of the pitching circle. Does the catch have to be in a squat or can they be standing there? Um, I prefer him in a squat. I'm not gonna that. I I'm not gonna draw a line there, because I do think sometimes it's a backup catcher who's just out here going, "This sucks. I'm not playing today. Just throw me the damn pitch." I ran into that with one of my first pitches. Uh, oh yeah, how'd that go for you? By yeah, the way? it was really it was a bad scene. I, and you know what? I'm I, I'm one of these people. I have to do everything twice. <laughs> I rarely get things right. Like when I go to do like ride a bike the first time i rode it into a garbage can right like down the street it was a disaster but i i adjust and i adjusted on that second pitch doug drabeck the pitching coach at the time with the hillsborough hops as i came back he said hey nice pitch like i don't know if doug drabeck said that to everybody who threw out a first pitch (laughs) but doug drabeck was a pretty good pitcher in the big leagues and i brought the heat you know Mm -hmm. i but my first pitch was an absolute it was unmitigated disaster and it started with the fact that the starting pitcher didn't want me to throw from the rubber. That's right. Remember that? Mm-hmm. He was upset because I went out and I climbed up on the mound, climbed up on the rubber, and he says, uh, hey, uh, he was getting ready to warm up after I threw my pitch. He mm-hmm. says, not on the rubber. Yeah. And I said, I have to throw off the rubber. And he goes, throw in front of the rubber. So there was a discussion as they're going, hurry up and throw the pitch, you idiot. And then I look over, second misfire part was the catcher. <laughs> It's a first baseman. He's got no gear on. Yeah. And he's standing. Yeah. And I tell him, get down. Mm-hmm. And he don't want to get down. Yeah. He waved me off. He said, no. I said, get down. And he reluctantly got into a squat. Right. With a first baseman's glove on. And then I started to wind up. And he yells, I don't have a cup on. Oh, yeah. Mid-wind up. Uh-huh. What catcher anywhere in baseball is going to yell to the pitcher, I don't have a cup on as the pitcher's <laughs> winding up. And so I'm thinking, don't don't leave it short in the dirt. Don't one-hop it to him. And so what I do, I throw it off the backstop. Yeah. Was he left-handed, Terrible. too? Can't remember Because that was. would throw me off, left-handed catcher. <laughs> Yelling at mid-wind mid, mid 
wind up. I was winding up like Satchel Paige. I was kind of doing the, like, <laughs> winding my hands over my head, you know. And, uh, and he, yells, problems. he yells, I don't have a cup on. That's all I heard. <laughs> Nobody else in the crowd heard it. I heard it. And it was a disaster. Who knew that would be a historic thing? I yeah. mean, that was what a Beavers game at the old yeah. Civic that was a AAA Stadium. Game. So I got demoted. What? I got demoted to Single A Hillsboro for my next pitch, <laughs> and I got I threw an absolute bullet, a strike. I had warmed up. I was in a jersey. I ran poles before the game. I threw played long toss. I was throwing off the mound because I had made a big deal with the hops. I said I will only do it if I get to throw yeah, off the rubber. You were, you were a maniac that day. I was you a little really bit were. of a I was yeah. a little bit of a prima donna. You were, you really were. And Kale Wambach of the GM was kind enough to uh, kind enough to uh, it's you amazing. Know, he returns accommodate me. Yeah. And then Doug Drabick, the pitching coach. I even you know I said a couple words with him before going out there. Told me to you know don't save my good stuff for the late innings. And then I had somebody. I even had somebody heckling me. Mm. Some guy in the front row. Was heckling, yelling, "I'll give you a hundred bucks if you throw a strike. I'll, you know, make a hundred dollar donation to the BFT Foundation if you throw a strike." And <laughs> and I threw a absolute bullet strike right down the. I I want to say it might have broke sixty eight, sixty nine miles an hour. I wasn't uh, like throwing no you know a hundred miles an hour. Should have got a yeah, gun on it. I know. They might have signed me. Yeah. They put a gun on mm-hmm. it. But as I walked off, Drabek goes, "Hey, nice pitch." That's my last first pitch. I'll never do it again. <laughs> Bruce Barnum is coming up. Uh, what did uh, Dan Lanning say about Bruce Barnum? I'm going to play it. We'll get Bruce Barnum's reaction from uh, you know to what Dan Lanning said about him. You'll hear it in real time next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, Bruce Barnum, Portland State football coach, is going to join us. They will play at Autzen Stadium on Saturday against the Oregon Ducks. Barnum and his team, uh, I think he's got a good team this season. How does he approach this season, this non-conference schedule? How does he approach this game at Oregon? Big stage for the Vikings on Saturday as they'll be at Autzen Stadium, and Bruce Barnum is here to talk about it. How you doing, Coach? Hey. How you doing, John? Thanks for having us. Talk to Judah. How you got Judah up there in the back row, huh? Well, you know what? Judah said you dropped four F-bombs in the pre-interview. So the It question... wasn't live. It wasn't live. <laughs> I know what's live now. I've learned. <laughs> we had Washington State's president on earlier, and if somebody All would right. have said, yeah, he dropped. He dropped. Trick show going over there right <laughs> there, now. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Bruce Barnum with us. Hey, i got to play something for you. Dan Lanning. Oregon coach, he talked about you, and okay. uh, you know this is what he. Once. You met him once. You know, you know, what you ought to do. You ought to tweet, keep my name out of your mouth. You ought to do that. But hold on, here's here's what Dan Lanning said about Bruce Barnum. Yeah, I've just got to uh, see him. We've we've been at some you know these satellite camps that you do as coaches. You know, um, in the off season and uh, these mega camps that you go to. I've got to be around him a few times there. He's a really personable guy, and then obviously. Um, to be able to be in a place for nine years, you must be doing something right, and he's uh, done it for a long time. But just respect for a guy that's coaching um, there at Portland State and how he's built his career. There he is. Had nice things All to right. say about you. Personally. I was, you know. Very, well, yeah, that sounds like a personable, you know, statement. I heard he fishes, so he can't be all that bad. <laughs> I like you that. You know? 
Hey, give me an idea. How do you approach this game? What do you you know? What are you looking to get out of week one, game one? Well, um, my SID dropped on my desk the other day. He tweeted, texted me the something. He's got all the stats, you know. And we have we had a one percent chance, whatever this thing was. So I texted him back. I said, "You saying we have a shot?" <laughs> you know, you got to play the game, John. Um, uh, great experience, nothing to lose. You know, nobody in America expects us to win that game. Um, and, and you know, you still got to play it. I want to go down and see who, who, what I have. I think I have one of the fastest teams in FCS football. I'll say that, and that's what we recruited. And you, you watch them, and you do all this testing, and. Got a bunch of guys over 20, got guys at 22 miles an hour. I don't know how they do it, but that's what they say. But, you know, the problem is I think I'm going against one of the fastest teams in FBS, so yeah. that's a minor issue. Um, uh, you got to plan for it. You know, you always you, you, you want to script for success, and they have some they have some great guys. You know, I look more on defense. We don't even have to go to uh, the mighty boat next yet, but – and what those receivers they have on offense, but they've, they've got talent all across the board. It's not one guy. You know, I usually play people, uh, they have one guy that you have to stop and take care of, or two, you know, up front, or they'll take you out of your game. Um, they've got a, uh, two deep of them, you know. They have a defensive end that looks like he's already in the NFL Hall of Fame. And, but, you know, like I said, uh, the way to nullify that, is play fast, you know, because I don't care who you are, you get tired. Um, but then if you're not getting first downs, you're not on the field very long. So you're looking at everything, you know. What are we going to do? I'm going to go in there, uh, make sure my team doesn't lose that game before we get there, and we're going to play our uh, we're going to play our asses off, John. You know, win or lose, uh, we're going to you'll see some effort from the mighty bikes. Now we got some good things going. You know, I don't know if you'll see it all at Oregon, just because they have the speed to nullify mm-hmm. a lot of football teams. You know, but the bonus is you get into the next week. We go to Wyoming. Um, I guarantee you, uh, just by looking at the the tape, that they're not as fast as Oregon. So the game's going to slow down each week we play, uh, and that makes it easier for your football team. So uh, I want to make sure we take that out of it. I want to make sure you know. We go then. We're supposed to lose by seventy. So you know, ready go. Uh, you went. You went on the road to Washington State once upon a time. You beat a Mike Leach team. Shocked. One point seven chance in that one, I think, or one point three, one point six nine. I can't remember what the odds were now. All right. See, so you, you, you win that game. Did you have a sense before that game that your team could stay on the field with Washington State, or does that unfold as the game is? going and you go we got some things we can do here well i had a quarterback and a safety that year that i thought were special you know um we won the special teams battle i think we gave them long fields um that kept them on the field a long time um you know because he's a chip away guy because we played back we i think we're the first to play the old drop eight drop nine against him um, that everybody ended up doing after that. But gave them long fields, and then they coughed up a punt, you know, and all of a sudden we went, you know, uh, and then all of a sudden we're up. But uh, things have to happen, you know. Um, 
do I think I can? I mean, you always look at this game. I'll be saying, okay, we're not we're supposed to lose by seventy, but there's so there's more to college football now too. And again, I don't know if it's going to work with the Ducks, but I watched all the zero week games, John, and they have a new rule: the the clock's not stopping now after first mm -hmm. downs. The games are shorter. I think it's going to be ten plays less each team. That's twenty plays. Can you make it more than that? You know, mm -hmm. if you get up. If you get up now, can the four-minute offense start with 11 minutes to go? You know, I watched the San Diego State. Oh, I watched them all. But then I looked at the statistics, and that's going to affect the game this year. You know, it's all on TV and the money. They want to shorten the games. But that's something that's out there. Can I use that against Oregon? You know, I hope so. But odds are that's going to be something that uh, I'm already looking at for later later in the season, you know. But that's interesting that you noted that, you know, it's taking 20 plays away from the game. You know, Chip Kelly once upon a time said, hey, I want to play fast because I think I have better players. I want more plays. That's more opportunities. So do you think like in the long haul, as we look back at the season, we may see games being closer in general? Like, will that tighten up some games in your mind? I think that well, it depends on your offense, on who you're going against. But I think it could because, like I said, if you're up by two scores, you get the football back. If you matriculate that ball down, right, the field, getting first down, converting on third down, you could have a drive that just destroys the clock and doesn't give them a chance, you know. And then if you score on it, go up by three, the game's over uh, because of that clock rule. So, I mean, it's just another piece to look at, you know, as you enter a game and put together the your plan, you know. But if you can run the football, um, that's something that I'm hoping to take advantage of. Bruce Barnum, Portland State coach with us. This this non-conference schedule, obviously you're making money on, on these games that you play against schools like Oregon. Uh, do you have concerns about what happens down the road is – Schools, you know, the Pac-12 dissolves and goes in a different direction. Does that make it harder, easier for you to find games? Does it raise the amount of money you can get for payday games? What do you think is going to happen to the market? Well, uh, here's what I'm looking at. I'm trying to take advantage of that, John, because I'm already getting calls. You need to talk. You know who would be a great interview for you? I don't know how much information he'd give you. There's a guy that does 90, you probably already know him, 98% of scheduling for every Division One football team, um, what I'm looking—I've already had a game switched next year because I've been told that team is not going to be able to play me. So I switched them out. What I'm looking at, because my problem is I, I want to play FCS teams, not FBS. Now, if you're going to another conference and you're not going to play me, follow me here. You still have to pay out my contract because you chose not to play me. Mm-hmm. So pay me that money. I'm going to replace you with an FCS team. Does that make sense? So I'm, yeah. I'm still getting the money. And I'm You're getting the money. You don't have to play. And now I'm going to play, instead of seven or eight FCS teams, I'm going to play 10 or 11. When seven of those, you have a shot at the playoffs. So it, it, it would change the world around here immensely. I've already changed next year's schedule, not this year's. I've already Next year, I have 10 FCS games. Hmm. Um, that hasn't been done here. I've never had that. But I think I'm going to have a, you know, I know I'm going to have a senior quarterback. I'm not losing much next year. Uh, that's my plan to get Portland State back to the playoffs. 
But, you know, this year it didn't affect me. That's one thing I'm looking at. What's going to happen? Because I'm scheduled right now out through 29, I think. You know? So, okay, you're in another conference. They say you have a game that that day, you know, a conference game. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to pay me the money, and I'm going to go, you know, schedule somebody my level. So th- that could be a bonus here. Your quarterback, Dante Sachere is um you know back this year what do you need out of him stay healthy uh, i think i told you this summer i put on 20 pounds he put on 20 pounds um he was 176 last year i think he's he's over 200 now he, he wasn't durable he was healthy one game last year and it was the easiest game of the year for us you know he offense rolled um uh, but keep him healthy because, um, you know, we're going to kind of go out. He goes, he's very dynamic. He's faster than my conference. Um, and so we run that, you know, the read option and the RPOs with him. And when he gets rolling, he's fun to watch. And this year the game has slowed down for him. It's his second year being the starter. Uh, you saw it in camp, you know, day one, practice one. He just has more of a handle of everything. So. Um, I'm excited to watch him, but I just got to keep him out there. I, but I put weight on him, you know, and they've got Kevlar to cover everything now. Now they have Kevlar. You don't just have the flak jacket. <laughs> yeah. You have something that goes down from the flak jacket, like from the middle down your sternum to your belly button. I mean, I'll, I'll cover him up, you know, and uh, throw him out there and see what happens. You're getting this game against Oregon, and I know there have been other years where you played teams like Washington and you know, you told me after you played Washington, you said, hey, that team is really good. They could they could end up conference champions. They're as good as anybody. And, you know, your logic proved true. You get a sense, you, because now you've seen Pac-12 teams over the years, kind of where the level of play is in the conference. I would love to know after you play Oregon if you see them as a contender. Do they have that kind of contender feel to them, or are they just sort of really good? Uh, I, yeah, I think you can. I, I think yes. I probably have the the what's it called the wisdom, not the wisdom, the experience to say something like that. Just uh, I have seen them. I haven't I've been on the other sideline, but you watch them. You watch their tape. You see the other games. Gotta watch all the other ones, even if I don't play them on the DVRs. You know, uh, that's my Netflix. I'll zip through those. Um, uh, just to get a feel for what's out there, you know. Last year, somebody asked me, we we're talking about Penix, you know, the Washington yeah. kid versus Bo Nix, yeah. you know, because I played Penix last year, and his accuracy and his arm strength was different, but he's a different guy. I think Bo Bo's Nix is faster than him, honestly. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I've, I've been watching the other side of the ball, more defense, but I've seen some of him in the spring game, et cetera. And don't get me wrong, he's got a bunch of tools uh, to get the ball to, but... Uh, he's, you know, um, so they know, they know how good he is, but he's savvy. I don't know where he came from, but that kid's, he seems like a smart football kid. Yeah, he's seen some Um, football too. He's played in some big environments. Uh, from your team standpoint, you've had seasons that get derailed in these payday games where you play an opponent, you get guys hurt. How do you manage that? Or can you even afford to think about that or... What do you, you know, as you approach a game, you, you can't go in there saying, hey, don't get hurt, guys, because nobody can play that way. No. Um, I've got a plan for that. 
John, if, you know, if the game goes awry, um, I'm not, you're not in the fourth quarter, you're not going to see me trying to catch up if you're down five, if we're down three, five scores against Oregon. Um, everybody's going to be happy on that, those buses that are going down in the morning uh, with some uh, nice breakfast burritos. And, uh, uh, you know what I do with my orange juice? I put it in the freezer for them for like an hour and hour and maybe 36 and a half minutes. So it turns into a slushy. You know, that's kind of a, hey, yeah. this is good. But they're all going to play if the game is out of hand. I'm not going to... Because uh, last year at Washington, I had seven guys go down in the fourth quarter. And I'm like, really? And then we go to Montana the next week, and I'm like, come on. So we have to be smart there, uh, you know. Uh, but uh, that game's close in the fourth quarter. My sideline's going to be, you know, I say this every FBS game. My sideline's going to be pretty loose. I think the spring trialist major might set in on the other one, if it's close in the fourth. I um. I asked Dan Lanning what his first play is going to be. He said, "What do you say? Flea flicker, double reverse." <laughs> well, I'll tell Dan this: if we get on the minus, because I need this one, if we get on the minus one or or closer, like the minus half yard line, I'm going to throw flea flicker because the one thing I don't have in my career yet is a 99 and a half yard touchdown pass. <laughs> It's got to be inside the one though. We have yeah. a ni- I got a ha- I had a ninety-seven and a half because we got uh, like a, a penalty or we gained a yard and it ruined it. I want that ninety-nine and a half yard pass, you know. Okay. Yeah. What, what so do you, you got to lose at that, that point? All right. I won't tell him exactly. anything. Exactly. You, you know, this well, is state care. state secret over here. Um, you <laughs> yeah. <know? laughs> you and your hundred thousand yeah. <laughs> listeners, for Craig's well, sake. Well, uh, hey, listen, I, I, we're going to visit with you every Tuesday at this time. And go give them hell at Oregon. Let's see what your team has to do. I'd love to see, uh, you know, you guys have some big moments and something to build on and obviously go into week two with some confidence. So, um, you know, go, go give them hell. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks for having us. All right. Bruce Barnum. There he goes. There he goes. Portland State football coach. I got three profanities in there. Did you catch three? I got three. Three? I had, I got, I had two. Uh, you got a, you got one in late. <laughs> you missed the late one. It's okay. It's okay. You know, maybe I maybe I misheard him. We should do an over under instead of will he cuss? Well, it was he did it so early too. That was I yeah. didn't th- I thought it'd be later, but he got it in real. No, quick. he got he, he got a late one in too. <laughs> he got a late one in. He got it in so quick, and he said, "Yeah, I I know what you can and can't say live now," and then he did it. Yeah, then he did it. They just, you know, I think he just, I think at that point he's just flexing. But I love how Dan Landing, Dan Landing is asked about Barnum, and he says he's real personable. See, if I'm Barnum, I take offense at that. What do you mean I'm personable? He didn't say he was smart, didn't say he was a great coach, said he was personable. Oh, he's a funny guy. What am I, a clown? Like, you do, you go into the whole Joe Pesci thing. You know, I'm here to amuse you. Like, if you're Bruce Barnum, you could play off that. But, you know, don't. I don't want to fan the flames, so to speak. Dan Lanning, Oregon Ducks coach. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach. Bruce Barnum, Portland State coach. We got three pretty fun coaches to interview on this show. We'll have Barnum all season. We'll have Lanning all season. And we'll have Jonathan Smith all season. Smith will be joining us tomorrow on the program in the 5 o'clock hour. Leave it here.
Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Super excited to see the college football action of week one. Oregon will be home against Portland State. Um, you know, look, obviously we want everybody to stay healthy. We want both those teams to go off into their season with health. But I, I just want to see Bo Nix in that offense get loose a little bit with Troy Franklin and Chris Hudson and some of the wide receivers at Oregon and um, see the ball in the air a little bit. And uh, Dante Sachere, the quarterback at Portland State, want to see him run around and make some plays as well. Bruce Barnum says he thinks he's got the fastest team in his division of football. I think that's interesting. Fastest team in his division. So keep an eye on busted coverage, missed tackles, both ways should be big plays in that game. Should be a, a number of big plays. San Jose State gave it to USC a little bit in the week zero game. It's a mismatch of talent, but San Jose State had some guys. And I think Portland State's got some guys as well. I don't know if Portland State's uh, athleticism and speed will factor against a team that can really run in the upper level of college football, but uh, we're going to see some of that. Keep an eye. I, I kind of think Bruce Barnum was signaling to us, without signaling to us, that the Week 2 game against Wyoming could be a little bit interesting. Uh, did you pick that up, Stephen? Is, is he started to talk about Wyoming. I, I kind of think he was saying without saying that Portland State might have a shot at Wyoming. Yeah, it sounded to me like he was saying they're as fast as Wyoming is. And then he yes. also said the fact that if they're down by three to five scores against Oregon, he's going to pull pull the guys. And I think that maybe you have to go with, you know what, we got a shot against Wyoming the next week. Let's not get these guys hurt like we did a season ago against Washington. I'm, I'm with you. I, he seemed very confident in his team, especially in that week two game against Wyoming. I keep an eye on that. Uh, obviously, you know, the Portland State season should be interesting. Five new head coaches in the Big Sky Conference, Bruce Barnum, being one of the uh, holdovers, so we'll keep an eye on them. They'll be playing all season out in Hillsboro at Hillsboro Stadium. Uh, obviously, uh, I am uh, grateful for the Portland State players who volunteered all summer at Camp Exceptional, and uh, you know gave their time, effort, and energy, and and uh, really put a lot into that camp. They do it every year. Among them, the quarterback Dante Sachere, he was out at the camp, and he was uh, Isaiah Henry, linebacker, was out there all week as well starting linebacker who's a big-time player for Portland State. So keep an eye on those guys this season. I know they've got some kids in the community that are rooting for them. I hope the families get out and get to see Portland State play some games. And and if you want to see a college football game, you don't feel like driving to Eugene or Corvallis and paying uh, you know prices and investing that kind of uh, disposable income and time uh, on I-5 driving to games, uh, Hillsboro's not a bad alternative. Go out and see some games, see some college football, and support Portland State this season. We're going to have Bruce Barnum on the show all season long. I always like to give Portland State some airtime. They get ignored. They get they get ignored by the local paper. They get ignored by others. You know, some TV stations do all right, all right in covering them. Nick Krupke uh, over uh, at his station does a good job, and Orlando Sanchez does a good job, and Joe Becker. But I think Portland State gets a raw deal. For, for what they are and for the amount of alumni that they have and for the place that they should have in our state in this mercurial thing that we call college athletics, hell, give Portland State a little bit of your time, effort, and energy because they're giving it back to you and uh, pouring into kids in the community and 
and uh, supposedly will have a very fast football team out there. Uh, Bruce Barnum, the ever-personable Bruce Barnum, that interview is available if you want to grab a podcast of it. Also, uh, my interview with Kirk Schultz, the Washington State president, is available wherever you get a podcast of this radio show. Tomorrow, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, he'll be among the guests. The bald-faced truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.